Hey, Gabe. Hey, what's up, Tim? You know, with the amount of time that James Bond seems to spend around nuclear weapons, I'm surprised that he hasn't already met his lifetime radiation exposure limit uh, with 12 movies, let alone 24 of them. Tim, I think you're being too critical. Super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. As always, you can listen to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, YouTube, anywhere else you may listen to podcasts. We've had some great episodes this uh, past year, including most recently on the Fallout video game series. We had a great one on North Korean antics in the interview, uh, as well as the role of nuclear weapons in Star Trek. So check those out if you haven't already. And thanks for some of our listeners who may be coming from uh, hearing about the show on the War College podcast that we did about nuclear weapons and dragons and Game of Thrones. So if you're coming from there, uh, welcome, and I hope you enjoy the rest of our shows. You can also check out our website, supercriticalpodcast.com, where we have a full list of episodes and the occasional bonus feature or two. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living. I am joined by my co-host, Gabe. Gabe, how are you doing? Hey, pretty good, Tim. Yeah, my name is Gabe. I have no qualifications to be on this podcast other than I like to watch movies with Tim and listen to him rant on for hours and hours. We used to have uh, Joel on the podcast, but you know, since they recast Bond for, for this one, we thought we also needed to <laughs> recast my part as well. So I'm playing Joel today, but you can call me Gabe. Excellent. Well, you're are you are you more of the campy version of Joel or more of the gritty version of Joel? Yeah, I, a little mix of both. A little, yeah, a little bit of business, a little bit of pleasure. We'll see how things go. <laughs> and uh, we're also joined by Alex, who you probably remember from our terrific episode on the Terminator franchise. And we only bring Alex on for an episode about something that's like more than five movies in a series. I'm the series specialist. Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in your writer. It's like if it's a one-off film, right. I don't want to have anything to do with right, it. Right. 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 No, it has to be a franchise. No, I'm, I'm honored to be back, so thank you for having me. Um, it's going to be hard to top the Terminator episode, but mm -hmm. I think we can do it. Well, let's give it a shot. So uh, we're here today because we had planned on doing an episode on a James Bond movie uh, earlier in May of this year, 2017, when Roger Moore passed away. So I, we all got together here, and we're sipping martinis and glasses. So how about a quick clink of the glass for Roger Moore? He passed away earlier this year, so we tried to do this. Summer got away from us, but much like 007, we'll eventually complete our mission. And today, we watched Octopussy, a movie from 1983, a more of a campy James Bond film, uh, where our favorite secret agent fights off clowns, snakes, tigers, spiders, carnies, and every awful Indian stereotype you can think of to stop a rogue Soviet general from detonating a nuke in West Germany and tricking Europe into giving up their nuclear arsenals. Yeah, and I mean, you're, you're saying that, and it it sounds ridiculous, but it actually, I mean, we'll get into it. It is kind of ridiculous. And some of those stereotypes are just cringeworthy. Yeah. I don't know if you have to judge Bond movies by other Bond movies, but I don't know if they would be made as well today. A Bond movie in the 80s, too, which is yeah. an extra special something, you know? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. This movie came out in 1983, the 13th James Bond movie in the Eon production line. So these are the canon 
ones they don't include like the goofy casino royale movie or the one that came out the same year which was the sean connery coming back to the film they had through some kind of licensing debate they were able to redo thunderball in a movie called never say never again came out the same year so they battled so they're head competing to head. bond films the same year yeah so they're not like part of the main line the production company that did Weird, all the james all right. bonds yeah, I guess it was like having a like a non-canon Star Wars come out. Yeah. yeah. And isn't that why they brought back Roger Moore? I think they were going to have some other guy play James him. James Brolin. There you go. Yeah. Um, and I guess they wanted Roger Moore to get the audience in and bring gravitas, although he's a little bit worse for wear, it seems. We'll talk about that as well. There's some serious debates about this, because I, I, I love Roger Moore. Roger Moore continues to be my favorite James Bond, although I recognize the criticisms of this. But this movie, when it was advertised had some of the most, uh, maybe maybe it made sense at the time, but nowadays really weird taglines on the posters. Uh, things like, James Bond's all-time high, or James Bond's all-time action high. Nobody does him better. Nobody does him better 13 times. James Bond movies, I don't think, are really known for having like great taglines, uh, but sometimes... And what, what's with really the high? Bad. Is that like a, oh, that's, that's like the, the most song. oh oh okay sorry I missed that yeah it's the um, it's the James Bond song I think it's called All Time High. I didn't know if this was like a Cheech and Chong uh, version of the <laughs> James Bond series. That'd be fun to watch. It still doesn't really answer the question. Like, So they had this song, All Time High, mm-hmm. which again was very 70s, early 80s. You could just hear it oozing through the speakers. But why, why was the song named that? It's, it, zero relationship right. <laughs> to the plot of the movie. It's one of those rare songs where there's there's no reference to the name of yeah. the, the title of the movie. Right, in there. yeah. I don't think you can really have the word octopusy sung a number of times in a film and Make it sound make sense. Anyway, this movie was directed by John Glenn, uh, not the astronaut, but the guy who directed a record eight James Bond films, which we talked about already. Roger Moore, when he was fifty five years old, was starring here as James Bond, the MI six agent 007. and including Octopussy. Roger Moore had seven films in which he played James Bond. This was his second to last film in the series. We have Maude Adams, uh, who plays Octopussy, a, a jewel smuggler and wealthy businesswoman who teams up with the bad guys, but isn't aware about the potential chance of a nuclear bomb going off as part of her activities. We have uh, Luis Jordan as Kamal Khan, an exiled Afghan prince who loves cheating at gambling and priceless jewelry. And he's working with Stephen Burkoff as General Orloff, a rogue Soviet general who is a bit of a madman, teams up with Khan to detonate a bomb, a nuclear bomb, that is, on U.S. Air Force Base. Uh, how did what did the critics say about this when it came out though? Rotten Tomatoes, forty-two percent. So not necessarily certified fresh, but it does a little bit better on Metacritic with sixty-three points out mm. of a hundred. So that's better, better than forty-two percent of people that actually liked it. But yeah, let's get into it. Usual spoiler warning: if you maybe just are hearing about this movie for the first time and you'd like to watch it before we spoil it for you, go and do that. Because we're about to get into it. There's some nuke stuff at the beginning. There's some nuke stuff at the end. Through all the middle part, it's just kind of a bunch of fun, campy nonsense that we'll get all the way through here. So we have our cold open right after the classic gun barrel shot on Roger Moore. Do you guys have any opinion on Roger Moore's ability to surprise you with a, a gunshot when he does his little walk across from the viewpoint of the barrel? Does it look like he knows what he's doing? Yeah, absolutely. 
I, I did like a lot of the um, the use of laser light in the opening sequence. It was a fun little treat. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? During the opening yeah. music uh, music video, they yeah, always yeah, do. Yeah, like when we're holding up guns and then like the laser light 007 would come out. It was, it was good. Uh, I mean, given Roger Moore's age, I'd be more uh, intimidated if he was like coming up to me at like 5 p.m. at a Denny's <laughs> to try to get his table. So I was not really con- – I'm going to be uh, super, super critical about this movie the whole time, I think. But no, it's just from the minute – he just he's like this wrinkly old dude. You want a different Bond story for a different time and age. You know, you have the young James Bond now with Daniel Craig, mm-hmm. kind of just just starting the whippersnapper James Bond and we've had different versions at different times. This is Bond in his twilight years before he's about to retire. He still can kick butt <laughs> here and there cuz the the essence of Bond, right, is the t- the talent. Yeah. is profound abilities, very good at disarming nuclear weapons. Uh, I'm not really sure where he learned all that stuff, but he clearly had a crash course in it. He can yeah. fl- he can fly airplanes, he can drive cars, he can operate submarines, he can charm the ladies, he can charm the guys if he needs to, he's, and he's got like just a huge repertoire of one-liners for every particular occasion. I think those are all still there, and you yeah, see that no, you see I, that from I, the open so. the opening right. cold open mission, right? Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah where he's they're they're in some. It looks like it should be Cuba. It's the country's never named, but they're in Cuba. He's trying to deactivate some sort of radar thing on an airplane. He's uh, disguised as a military official, ends up getting caught. One thing I want to say about this was, why was this horse race simultaneously yeah, like I... in a dual-purpose location for where they test, I guess, uh, advanced airplane jets and mm. military hangars? I guess the end of the movie, there's a circus at a U.S. Air Force base, so maybe it's not a, a crazy... It's like an air show slash horse race. It's just, you know, fun for the whole family. Yeah, but yeah. it's like five feet away. There's no... Yeah, well, little. I guess there was a little security checkpoint, but... Well, there was a security checkpoint, yes. And Alex, how does, he, how does James Bond get past the security checkpoint? Yes, this is one of my favorite parts, is uh, we're uh, expected to believe that Roger Moore can just put on a fake mustache in a Cuban military officer's <laughs> uniform and pass as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Cuban. Mm-hmm. That was that was wonderful. But I think we were talking about this earlier. If you start to look at all the other actors that are supposed to be playing the Cubans, with the exception of like the Fidel character, <laughs> they were all also blonde-haired, blue-eyed, clearly British actors. That was that was fantastic. Yeah, it, for James Bond movies, it's they're not they can't go out and cast Soviet generals. They're going to cast some British guy who can maybe do a, a Russian guess, accent. I feel like you could try a little harder and get <laughs> someone that looked Cuban. I don't know. Yeah. That's just me. Well, so Bond is supposed to uh, plant a bomb on the nose cone of some some kind of jet that beeps a lot. I, I don't know. Do these jets on the nose cone tend to have, like, dish satellite well, dishes? Well, yeah. No, there'll be, a, there'll be a radar on the nose, but but it won't be, like, lit up and beeping and, you know, that. <laughs> he tries to blow it up. Can't. Uh, they get He gets caught. He, the guy who he's supposed to be dressing up as is there as well. I don't know. if When I looked at the screen, I thought it was a split screen. They looked pretty similar. <laughs> I don't know right. if it was uh, Roger Moore's brother, Fred Moore or something. Yeah. But so they he gets he gets taken away in this truck to be tortured or questioned or something. And luckily his assistant or his liaison on the ground, this, you know, this nice Cuban lady who right. she drives a truck and – tricks uh seduces the other people on on the truck uh just enough to so that bond can pull their parachutes and they fly out the back of the truck unclear why they had parachutes yeah they were just on the ground walking around with parachutes on it's very convenient for for bond but uh hard to explain 
So he jumps off the truck. He goes on the other one, and there's this kind of funny scene where the other car pulls up, and the the driver, the lady, is kind of again flirting with the other guys that are in their driver's seat. And then all of a sudden, Bomb p- picks up, and he's got a, a machine gun yeah. narrowed right to him. But he doesn't shoot them. He's a, <laughs> he's a nice guy. He doesn't shoot them. He doesn't shoot the other guys either. He lets everybody kind of get away. He shoots the tires out so they can embarrass themselves. Although later on in the movie, Bond is perfectly happy with murdering pretty much every other person he runs into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He gets away, but Gabe, I'm going to let you handle this one because as the pilot in the room, I, I was hoping you would be a little more giddy about this particular scene. How does, yeah, how does, he, how does no, he end he, up getting away? Right. He, he, uh, he gets – the horse trailer is actually a um, – it's carrying the small micro airplane. It's a, it's a BD-5J. It's a small – micro kit plane it almost looks too comical to fly and um he he takes it in the air it's it's very you know small and maneuverable uh they fire a missile at him he gets into this this chase there's this very dramatic scene where he kind of flies the plane through the hangar to avoid the missile and the missile you know hits the uh hits the hangar and and kills everyone and he kind of smiles that he's now (laughs) murdered so 100 Cubans. But no, this is not the super critical angle of attack podcast, which is that's <laughs> aviation nerd term. But uh, angle, c- angle of attack is a great name for a podcast. There, there you go. Um, but well, crit- critical angle of attack is a is a thing. But um, uh, there's just a lot to pick apart in this scene. We could, I could spend an hour talking about it. He lands on a road and then pulls up to a gas station and like, oh, this is like the one gas station in Cuba that also has Jet A to fill up his jet plane. So how... Yeah, how convenient. Sorry, I'm done. I'm done. Supposedly, this this is based on the guy who actually flew the plane for the movie, the stunt pilot who flew the plane, who who had one of these um, BD-5Js. That happened to him, where he ran out of gas and, and had to land on really? some crazy strip. And I think he was trying to get it filled up, but he got towed somewhere to get uh, okay. it filled up. He didn't land yeah, next to some... next to the gas. Apparently, this plane was had a very bad safety record, so I'm not surprised that yeah that Bond had to do that and run out of fuel. So maybe it was art imitates life. Well, I heard a, yeah. a story about a a guy who was a 30 year pilot. He was an he was in Ireland, and he loved James Bond and loved this movie and wanted to build this jet. And over the course of many years, built it, including with the the jet engine, and flew it for a little while. And on his way to an air show crashed and, and died really uh, very sad very sad mm-hmm. story um but at a certain point there was this craze of people wanting to build airplanes based on this particular film and i think it's interesting this is the last cold open in a bond movie that has nothing to do with the rest of the film all of the ones after that are either set up the film or they're like directly related uh, usually the bond movies the cold open has nothing to, it's just like another mission that he does some sort of spy stuff on something there's to to get you excited. So let's go into the first actual scene of the film. Uh, we see what I call Foreshadow the Clown. Uh, he's a guy in like a yellow clown outfit. And he's got a bunch of balloons attached to him. And he, you're like, oh, cool, a clown. And nope, he jumps over a fence. He's like running from something. And it's this fun contrast between this guy in a silly clown outfit and the sheer terror on his face. He's being chased by a knife-wielding carny. Uh, some sort of guy who's in like, like a knife thrower guy at a, at a at a circus, and he jumps a fence. It's in East Berlin near a military base, and turns out he's being chased by twins. So even that adds an additional scary level of uh, conflict to this. And he gets a knife in the back. Uh, and I, I was joking with Alex about this earlier. It's like a role reversal from the movie It, 
mm-hmm. which is very popular this year. Yeah. Uh, because he, he basically is carrying around a red balloon, but he's the one being chased yeah. by twins instead of him chasing them. Yeah, when I first watched it, I, I thought it was like a reference to it or something like that, just because of the red yeah. balloon and everything. But we, we looked it up, and it didn't wasn't it was written before, until yeah. 86, and this was, the movie was 83. So maybe um, it came from this movie. Maybe. Yeah. Let's start that rumor right here. Yeah. Let's just do that. Exactly. Uh, at some point, if we see in the new It movie that comes out, if, if one of the kids or It has some sort of nuclear bomb plot <laughs> in right. it, uh, then I'm into it. Uh, so the clown dies, but not before he's able to kind of float away with a knife in his back down this river mm-hmm. and conveniently lands right next to the UK ambassador. I to did a, love that. That was yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes through the window uh, and drops an egg that rolls right over into the guy and it's a Fabergé egg right those are pretty Mm -hmm. fancy things that were made in the late 1800s and early 1900s Russian jeweler Karl Fabergé made a bunch of jeweled eggs for the Tsar family Uh, and in total there were about 105 eggs and according to this I don't know when this was uh, about 70 of them are known to exist today so one of them is in this plot yeah so it's just like super valuable kind of MacGuffin thing to get the plot going uh, and I always forget, because I, I confuse this movie every once in a while with, I don't really, but there's a plot at the end of The Man Who Knew Too Little, hmm. which is one of my favorite spy movies. It's with Bill Murray, hmm. where he thinks it's all like a fake interactive play uh, while he's visiting his brother in London. And no, it's actually like an actual spy novel uh, being acted out. And at the end of that movie, there's a nuclear bomb or some sort of big bomb in a uh, Russian nesting doll. And I was confused that because I, I was rewatching this film. I was like, "Is the okay. nuke inside the Fabergé egg?" Uh, mm. <laughs> uh, no, it's, we haven't we haven't made him that small yet. All right, so let's cut to London, where 007 checks in with Money Penny at Universal Exports, the front company for MI6, and uh, he flirts with Money Penny and her assistant. Uh, again, 1980s uh, uh, gender dynamics, and it turns out that the minister has called in Bond because all these Fabergé eggs, some of them are showing up out of nowhere. There's fakes. Being involved, the one that 009, who it turns out is, was the clown from earlier in the film, this other uh, secret agent, had a – it was a fake egg because they have a, an art dealer expert there who's able to tell them that. So what's his mission? Yeah, so his his mission is he has to go try to figure out why somebody is passing off these fake Fabergé eggs. It could be the Russians involved. Uh, it could be some art forgery. So, yeah, of course, 007 needs to get involved with that. Th- then it cuts to the scene where it kind of moves the plot along. There are these Russian generals uh, talking about th- – they have this very strange table. It looks like a – I loved this table. <laughs> I mean, like, they had a budget, you know, to build yeah. this mo- this uh, this room, and they were going to spend every last dime of it. On the table. Yeah, it, like, to, to do a presentation instead of just opening up a wall or bringing down, you know – a projector screen or something like that. The whole thing pivot, the whole like desk pivots. It was very like Bond, you know, Soviet era. It, it was it was great. You it's, guys should check out the movie just for this desk. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty impressive. It's my kind of conference room. It might make uh, conference calls and things like that a little more interesting if your table moves around. Absolutely. So these guys, they're talking about a, a nuclear disarmament deal with the West, and uh, everyone seems to be in agreement until this rogue general, raises, General Orloff, raises his hand. Next subject on the agenda is the continuing mutual disarmament talks with NATO. Adoption of NATO proposals does not compromise our defensive position. <clears throat> uh, comrade Chairman. General Orloff. 
General Gogol is presumptuous. He speaks for himself and others who cling to timid, outdated, and unrealistic policies. Must I remind you, the committee, of our overwhelming superiority over NATO forces before we give it away? He shows how much how much more superior the Russian forces are than the decadent West, <laughs> and uh, clearly he is at odds with the rest of the generals, and they they kind of shut him down and say, you know, no, the, we're, the West will nuke us. Yeah, the, right, exactly, and that's that's what we're going to be, I think, talking about today. Um, but uh, it's clear that he is kind of the rogue guy who's disagreeing with his comrades, and this is absolute madness. We know where it will end. NATO will counterattack with nuclear weapons. Never! The West is decadent and divided. It has no stomach to risk our atomic reprisals. Throughout Europe, daily demonstrations demand unilateral nuclear disarmament. It definitely paints Orloff as a, a rogue guy who's mm -hmm. separate mm -hmm. from the rest of the leadership. And there's kind of like a Brezhnev like guy, and you can tell because he's got really big bushy eyebrows, who really says, no, we're not going to handle this. Uh, and one thing, I don't know if you guys, how you thought about the, they mentioned NATO disarmament talks. They never actually say nuclear, so I was underclear about whether or not they meant it's nuclear weapons and conventional mm, forces. Because yeah. at a certain point at this stage, we can kind of set context here, you know, the U.S. has lots of nuclear weapons, NATO forces like the, uh, the British and the French, you know, French has a different relationship with NATO at that particular time. Um, but there's lots of nuclear weapons, and we stationed a lot as the U.S. in parts of Europe, all over the place. And the Russians had a bunch in, right along the border, mm. and they also had half of the country in, under their administrative control. And, but way more conventional forces, like a 10 to 1 ratio, 9 to 1, 10 to 1 ratio of conventional forces the Russians had. Mm. So I don't know if uh, you guys got a sense from what he mentioned about disarmament talks. I think he just says disarmament talks. Because this matters later, but whether or not they're talking about disarmament for nukes or disarmament for conventional I was forces. just focused on that table. I couldn't really. Yeah. That's what you kept revolving around? The, it was very, the room was very distracting. Yeah. Yeah. I love the, I love the, the map that gets pulled up. I think it's from a, sta a picture of Stalin that gets pulled up and then there's a map. Yeah. No, it's, it, we could, we could spend like hours talking about like all the ridiculousness in this, in this movie. But it's perfect. It, it, it casts the Russians as a Bond villain. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, so then we meet the, the next villain, uh, which is this guy, Khan, uh, the, the former Afghan prince. So Bond goes to this auction, this high-end auction, where they're, they're auctioning off this real Fabergé egg, mm -hmm. and he gets into a bidding war with this guy, Khan. There's this great scene where Bond's with an art dealer who's like, astounded that bond is like keeps bidding up the price way above market value i think it ends up going for uh 1.6 million dollars in today's uh money which is a lot of money for an egg yeah. and he's all cool under pressure and doesn't seem phased even though Khan wins the egg the art dealer's like why'd you do that and we find out later he actually bond actually planted the fake uh mm -hmm. on the auction block so now he's gonna see where this guy's going with the egg this con guy do you think that Bond could have actually switched those eggs. I mean, the entire room is looking right at him, that and he's like, remarkable. I'm just going to switch the eggs. That was pretty impressive, right? Yeah, that was incredibly impressive. That's a Penn and Taylor stuff right there. Yeah. They just thought he like escaped from the nursing home, and they just like weren't paying any attention to him. Like, why are you, why are you here, dude? <laughs> I also think it makes sense, because later on, we see James Bond dressed like a clown, so maybe magic and other sleights of hand tricks 
he probably is really good yeah, with that jug- stuff. Yeah, juggling, uh, all these kinds of, yeah. It's these, one set of tools, yeah. These kinds of Bond movies, like, it reminds me of, like, the early days when they were writing the Superman comics. Oh, oh yeah. he meets this foe, and so he needs to have super strength all of a sudden or, like, be able to freeze things with his breath or whatever. Same thing with Bond here, right? He's got some light clowning skills, uh, <laughs> master at sleight of hand, can uh, fly a jet airplane through an airplane hangar, yeah. like with Jedi-like focus, right? It's just whatever the occasion calls for, he's got it. I love that. The extent of his powers is unknown. Like, if you drop him in space, do you think he could, like, you know what? I've practiced holding my breath. I'm they, very good at I mean, they dropped him in space in Moonraker. That's Maybe true. we talk about that later in another podcast, yeah. Oh, man. So, yeah, I don't know what else, I don't know what his limits are. <laughs> he doesn't, we, I don't mean he doesn't even know. Now the plot goes to, he follows this con guy to India, and this is where just some of this cringeworthy, like, he gets off the boat, and there are, like, there's, like, a snake charmer, and they show all these pictures of, like, he's supposed to be in New Delhi, and they show a picture of, like, the Taj Mahal, which is nowhere near that at all, and it's just, like, reminding the viewer, like, oh, we're in India, and, he, you know, uh, so... Well, much like nuke movies, where you have to have a mushroom cloud, or... Something has to glow green, or there's mm. going to be a red button that launches the bomb. Yeah, there's these shorthand things. Tell that... audiences that you're in India, in and the... what does that better than the Taj Mahal? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The, the worst one for me, and this is one of my three really cringeworthy moments of the movie. There's so there's the snake charmer, and he plays like the Bond theme song in yeah. like in world, yeah. and Bond like responds to it and like kind of smile. Charming tune. He like almost like winks at the camera and then goes over to him and he turns out to be this. He's sorry. the point of contact. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. the point. He's the point of contact. But it was just like really you had to use the real Bond song like in world like it just. I love that. I thought that was I thought that was terrific. Yeah, breaking the fourth wall there was was very interesting. I love when movies do that. Yeah. So that guy, his local contact is his name is VJ. In real life, his name is VJ, and he's the at the time the most famous person in India. He's a famous tennis player that's why you see him later on fighting during that chase with the tennis racket oh okay and he's a tennis uh connoisseur he's like at the club that's how he knows about con playing tennis and all that stuff they have that great line where he says what have you learned uh being a tennis instructor with kumail khan he goes well my backhand has certainly improved (laughs) i i laughed at this movie uh pretty much every single one of these jokes (laughs) he's there right along my humor line. Except when the nuke stuff came up and then you got serious. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, you know, you can't have, I guess you can't have everything, right? Yeah, exactly. So, okay, so he goes to this, so Bond goes to this casino where this guy Khan is playing backgammon, which I guess, I, I don't even know, is that an Indian thing? Who knows? Um, but uh, I guess this Khan guy, he has these like loaded dice that whenever he needs it, it'll throw double six. Sure enough, Bond is like the only one to figure out this trick <laughs> yeah. and... I guess does something where there's some rule that allows you to take the dice and use it. And Bond steals the dice and throws double six and win. And this Khan guy kind of threatens him. Khan has a, a big, you know, every Bond movie mm-hmm. needs a, a big muscle guy. There's this guy in a turban who kind of crushes the dice. And, and so he's clearly going to be part of this. And I think there's some threat, you know, oh, you won this money, spend it quickly. and Spend it quickly, Mr. Bond. <laughs> there you go. And then uh, they get into this 
car chase where they go th- uh, they go through the streets of, of New Delhi being chased. And this is where it just gets ridiculous. Yeah, th- this was the best part. So first of all, anytime it seems in any movie, Bond or otherwise, you have a chase in that part of the world, mm-hmm. like right, South Asia, Middle East or whatever. It has to devolve into some chase through a crowded bazaar or something like that, right? There yeah. has to be a market chase or whatever. This one was particularly great because they just brought out the who's who of Indian mysticism, right? There was a guy laying on a bed of nails. Wasn't there a guy swallowing fire, swallowing swords? Sword, yeah, sword, yeah, yeah. Swallower, Which Bond uses the yeah. sword. Oh, yeah. I love it when he hands it back and says, you better put this back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's like people riding elephants everywhere. It's just, it's, it's pretty, it's a little, it's like borderline racist almost. It was the 80s. It was a different time, right? Exactly. A racist time. Right. But so they're, they're going around in these like uh, tuts, these kind of kind of like motorcycles with, you know, like a truck on the back. It was still entertaining. I thought the chase was pretty fun. Uh, there's at one point you think James Bond just got stabbed in the heart with a knife. You're like, whoa. But no, it's because he had yeah he had, the, he had Yeah, he had like uh, money and he's like, like thanks so so much for hard currency or something <laughs> like that. And just ridiculous. That was good. Oh, it's, like, it's actually, I mean, you take away that stuff. This is a fun Fun, like, classic Bond chase, right? Um, yeah. Well, if people enjoyed that, they should check out the movie Umbach Thai Warrior. There's a terrific, like, 20-minute chase scene where they – every it was, like, 50 or 60 of these tut-tut motorbike mm. – motorized rickshaws. Mm-hmm. And um, it's pretty great. I don't know if you would check that out. It's on YouTube. You can do a lot less uh, uh, general racism, but it's just the same level of high-intensity high action. Mm. Bond escapes, and um, they make it into uh, the MI6 uh, headquarters in India, I guess the local office, and who's there but Q, the, the gadget guy, and mm-hmm. they do the obligatory Bond scene where Q outfits him with his gadget, so he gets uh, he gets this cool fountain pen that's filled with acid, always good for signing important documents. He gets a homing device and a radio listening device uh, tied to the watch where they keep zooming in on the Seiko logo, so clearly there was some mm-hmm. early product placement there. And then uh, a little uh, liquid crystal TV, and this is my second cringeworthy yeah. part of the movie where he like blatantly like zooms in on this pic- like a woman's cleavage, and she doesn't even move or respond, and it's just like it's there on screen for like a little too long, and Bond's looking at it, and they're all well, not not just zooms in. It's not like it'd be one thing. Well, I, whatever. He doesn't just zoom in. He does the wee wee like in yeah. and out, like you know, yeah. in and out. You know, it was yeah. It's very like let's juvenile. put some Dutch angles in there. Right, and, like, right. Let's really get this. Uh, no, this is definitely one of those moments where yeah. again, I, I haven't seen any of the new James Bond with Daniel Craig except for the first one. What? How does? Uh, how do they tend to handle more of these kind of? Sensitive it's not issues. it's not as I, I mean it's not as blatant um you know there's still a lot of a lot of womanizing going on i think there was some in one of the movies there was some like controversy because there's a shower scene and he kind of he just like after meeting the woman for the first time just like shows up in her shower on this boat it was a weird yeah. weird scene yeah yeah well, like and this okay. was this is a movie made in like 2015, 2016, something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, talking about Bond girls, I guess this would be a Bond girl. Uh, he yeah. gets invited to dinner by a Bond girl who was at the auction earlier. She was the one that kind of led uh, Kumail Khan to this process. And they have dinner. Someone comes by and takes a photo of them. And Bond says, oh, what do you, what's that photo for? And what does she say? Like, uh, I keep memories for my scrapbook. And that's that next transition line, which allows him to say, well, let's go make some memories. And then Q 
them in a, in yeah, a bed. Cue the night of yeah. yeah, a night of passion and and you know with the the Viagra was probably needed. But uh, so yeah, so they ha- they have their night of passion and uh, the the woman sneaks away, but not before Bond puts a tracking device on her to figure out where she's going. Well, in the Faberge egg, right? In the yes, yeah. exactly. So she, sorry, she steals the the real Faberge mm-hmm. egg. And takes it back with her, and uh, so Bond's going to now track them, but is knocked out by the uh, big bad turban guy, and uh, he he comes to, and he's being uh, taken to the lair of uh, of Khan, and mm-hmm. it's it's this weird boat that's being rowed by all these scantily dressed women. Um, these women are all over Khan's kind of palace, so and this is a group the uh, the octopusy cult. I mean, they kind of almost like a bit of a. A cult. They're like a, a gang mm-hmm. of yeah. people with various talents. Yeah, uh, and this is the group that we don't. We haven't met her yet, but Octopussy is this leader of the group that's working with um, Kumail Khan. Right, and this and is I, her crew. I think we see her before this. There's like you don't see her face. You see yep. her talking, and which is great because it's like that classic uh, like uh, Blofeld moment where for a long time you didn't see Blofeld. You just saw him petting his cat, right. Doctor mm. Evil style. Was that? That was weird. Well, I mean, was it a reference to past Bond films? Was she this actress, someone famous? Like, why Why do we wait for the reveal? Do you, I you think know it was just that? to give a really good reveal for the Bond gotcha. movie. I'm sure it was a, a little bit of an homage. Uh, Maude Adams actually was in a previous James Bond movie, and then they brought her back later on as a full-fledged talking villain character. Huh. Yeah. Uh, so they brought her back. They do that a couple times where certain people will, be, will play different people mm-hmm. later on in other films. So Bond is – he's abducted by the Octopussy cult. Uh, there's a dinner that takes place uh, among Bond, uh, the, the, this woman, uh, Magda, uh, Miss Magda, and then Khan. Uh, there's some threats. They eat a, uh, a dinner of sheep's head with a graphic, like, eyeball-eating scene. <laughs> Again, bef- before the famous scene in Indiana Jones. I was going to say. Yeah, before yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. An- guess- another, another, like, way to tell the audience, like, hey – isn't this weird? We're not in America anymore, <laughs> you know? Like, we're way past, yeah. But Bond refuses to eat it, which is kind of funny. It seemed like he'd be... I mean, what's really wrong with eating stuffed goat head? I mean, if there's meat there, and what's, yeah. it's not, he's not asked to eat the brains yeah, of a goat. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I, I think that's crazy. We eat... I mean, we've had uh, lengua, which is cow tongue. Cow cheek is one of the best pieces of meat you can buy in barbecue. So, personal story. Um, I've had a stew made out of lamb's head called calipache it's a persian dish Mm -hmm. and my wife's dad made it for me once and it's delicious there were no like eyes or anything like that but Uh, he did open the pot for me and there's just like three lamb skulls floating in this like were you guys married at this point tomatoey broth yeah yeah we were yeah come here alex check us out basically yeah it was a test probably but uh it was delicious i see why they eat it you know (laughs) yeah i don't know why bond was so like this is ridiculous i mean you just got clubbed over the head and brought over to some place at least enjoy a nice delicatessen dish. I mean, he's probably not making this at home. Yeah, no, probably not. So after this dinner, uh, Bond is incarcerated in his cell. He uh, he manages to escape with the pen. Uh, he squirts it on the bars, um, but not before he discovers that General Orloff from the crazy oh, he table shows up? scene. He yeah, he's he's at the lair. Um, he he bugs the uh, so they have the, the real Fabergé egg, and he's going to listen to it with his listening device, and he picks up some of the conversation. But is actually uh, thwarted by Magda's like using her hair dryer, and they're in this like fortified castle. She uses a hair dryer, and it like jams the signal, and like they didn't think about the hair dryer. So, well, this is the problem with MI6 because it's such a boys' club. There's no, they don't. Te- uh, yeah, when, when right. Hughes yeah, testing exactly. his devices. He's not testing in. The, they're in like, the we field. tried the electric razor, but we didn't try the hair dryer. Right, right, right. right. 
like, this is the problem. This is why MI6 needed to diversify. That's yeah. why later on Judy Dench becomes M. Is because they were thwarted so exactly. many times. Yeah, he doesn't get the full details, um, but Khan gives Orlov forged jewels, and Orlov gives Khan uh, the real deal in exchange for help with a secret plan. Um, that's going to take place at Karl Marxstadt, a city in, in Germany. Yeah, we, uh, so, we only hear parts of the plan. Yeah, we don't know exactly. What, something's going to go down there. Bond tries to escape, uh, but is is they, they, they find him escaping, and there's this very elaborate scene. Essentially, like, Khan calls a hunt, and they're <laughs> going to hunt James Bond. He's out in the jungle, and just magically, like, 300 villagers appear, and they're all going to go on this hunt. It's literally Khan and his henchmen on elephant back, with like these big like elephant rifles and like going through the jungle chasing after Bond. Third cringe worthy scene of the movie, Bond swings from a rope and does a like the actual Tarzan yeah. sound effect. Yeah. Yep, that was great. I don't know what I just I just don't I don't understand that. It was a fun thing I'm sure they put in there. But why? It's it's weird, but it's not only within context. There's even more because he, in a matter of maybe like a two minute period, he, Bond runs into tarantulas. He runs into a snake. Uh, he tells a tiger to sit down, and it listens to him. Yep. Uh, although I think that actually might be okay because the, we'll learn later on that octopusy runs a circus. So maybe that was a trained uh, tiger okay. that if you tell it sit down, it'll sit down. But it's still trying to kill him. I think you're being way too generous to the movie. <laughs> Uh, there's elephants that he has to not get stepped on with. Mm-hmm. Uh, he stops in the middle of being chased with uh, with guns and whatnot to take a leech off of his skin. Yeah, yeah, kind Let of a fun go, little man. moment. Just keep going. He fights off alligators. It's like a whole bunch of things all in one little short deal. Yeah. Finally escapes on like a tourist boat full of American tourists in the middle of the uh, in the middle of India and um, is able then to infiltrate a floating palace uh, that's. Only a, a female only floating palace and using an alligator submarine. Yeah, he has this like <laughs> the alligator, <laughs> um, and um, he finally meets Octopussy, and we we get some backstory on Octopussy. I guess her dad was a disgraced MI6 agent, and Bond was sent out to uh, take him in, and Bond actually gave him the choice: either I can take you in. You know, or you can have a day, and and the guy actually kills himself. She is grateful that Bond gave her dad an out that he could, you know, take the honorable path. It, it's a little bit strange, but kind of, I mean, interesting. There's some, you know, there's some backstory there. So it's clear that she's kind of in Bond's camp. She protects Bond from Khan mm-hmm. uh, for the time being, and um, we learn a little bit more about this this octopus cult um, that they're. Um, they're trained for for the crime and multiple businesses, so it's almost like the mafia where they have yeah. the criminal element and then the legit front. But the legit front is a, a thriving circus industry, which I guess in the 1980s in Europe and in, in parts of the the subcontinent, it's just that is the place. Like that's the place to go. You know, Game of Thrones isn't out yet. Probably not even starting to be written yet. And that's the place you want to do where you get your entertainment. You go to the circus. The, the 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 movie goes back to uh, London where we get some exposition. We we find out about the plot so far, trying to figure out why Orlov and Khan are doing business together. And Bond goes to East Berlin where where there's one of the circuses. So he pretends to be a circus roadie in the Octopussy Circus, and the the real jewels get locked in this box and put into into a cannon that mm-hmm. uh, fires this mustachioed you know <laughs> hero. Um, Octopussy thinks that they're just moving the jewels around in secret, but actually there's a a little switcheroo. Mm-hmm. Um, the train car with the jewels gets switched with a train car with a nuclear warhead. 
a 100 kiloton bomb. You, and you know this because there's a guy with glasses that tells you all these things. 100 kiloton yields. The effects are indistinguishable from the American medium yield bomb. The detonator. Now listen carefully. It is preset for a four hour delay. Set time for the explosion here. Be at least 20 miles away when it goes off. Hmm? Uh, the detonator has a four hour delay, and this is fun because we get another digital uh, red, you know, red number, red digit mm -hmm. countdown clock, which is great. You can't have a nuclear bomb without a countdown no, clock. No, no, absolutely not. Uh, he says, be 20 miles away when this thing goes off. And we'll talk a little bit later on why that might be a bit of overkill in terms of the type of distance that you need. Oh, you could be much, much closer, huh? Uh, you could probably be okay. Uh, but the train is heading for a U.S. Air Force Base, uh, which it's a fictional Air Force Base called uh, Feldstadt uh, Air Force Base in West Berlin. And that's where it's headed. Uh, and then we find out, because Bond puts a gun to Orloff, and you hear about his, his plan. And so close to the end of the movie, and we finally find out what's happening. The plan is... We'll detonate a, a bomb that looks like a U.S. bomb, and we'll detonate it on this Air Force base, and people in Europe will think it's an accident. Someone must have kicked the bomb or lightning hit it or something happened, and the bomb went off, which will freak out everybody, and the anti-nuclear movement will jump on that and use it to convince un – unclear, but convince a number of countries in the area to either pull nuclear weapons out of Europe or to disarm all of their bombs. It's really right. unclear. It's, this it's is something. a very, like, this is like a long shot plan. Right. So that's that's the plan. And then once that happens, Orloff's crew uh, will bring in their conventional forces and roll over Western Europe mm. and, and take it over. So that's that's the general plan. Simple, simple one step, two step, three step plan. So much to talk about in this plan. I mean, I'll let you finish the, the, <laughs> yeah. the plot, but uh, there's a lot wrapped up in here. Uh, Bond hides in this gorilla costume. Another like it's going to get more bizarre. I'm I'm warning you for those who haven't seen the movie to get away from Orlov. Orlov gets killed by Russian troops because it's it's seen that he's gone rogue. He proclaims himself a hero of the Soviet Union and and uh, Khan at the same time he arms the bomb to go off at 3:45 p.m. and uh, he plans to leave at 3:15, cutting a little bit close to, to travel 20, 20 miles. miles. You don't know if there's going to be you traffic. Give yourself some more time. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 He, yeah. Must, he must be. Maybe he has another one of those. Uh, uh, jets, those portable jets in one of the train cars. He's going to fly away. And it turns out later on he's a pilot. Yeah, right, right, exactly. And, I mean, there's one uh, one key thing here is Octopussy is not in on this. So Octopussy, they're going to leave her to die. Khan, yeah. uh, Khan is going to escape, and uh, Octopussy would be killed at the circus. So, so there's this whole scene where the circus is going on, um, the train is is uh, reached its destination, the cannon is unloaded, the cannon with the nuclear weapon is unloaded, it's there at the circus, and Bond like swings into action. He steals a car. He breaks onto the military base. Manages in like a minute to dress up in full clown makeup and gets into the circus somehow. Tries to like plead with the generals. You know, it, 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 they think it's a comedy because he's dressed up as a clown doing all this stuff. But he's like, no, there's a bomb. And uh, he, he he finally forces his way to the bomb. And with less than 13 seconds uh, left, he starts disarming it. And with one second to go bomb is disarmed i mean it literally it's disarmed as it goes from one to zero yeah basically by disarming the bomb he just pulls out the the timer the detonator right i mean yeah. isn't that what that yeah expert something 
well, something's here where they made this bomb for this purpose. Like, this is not hmm. how maybe so, one of these would work. I mean, these are usually – they're backpack bombs that have timers on them. So maybe that's it. But usually once you set the timer, you can't just, like, pull out the, the plug. Right. There'd be some sort of a tampering measure so someone couldn't just disarm the bomb by unplugging it. Well, this thing, it, it had the, – the device was – when he takes it out, like, these three big prongs, like, pop out. So I guess the thinking is – and maybe we can talk about this later. The thing is that those would I- initiate the nuclear chain reaction or something sure, like that. something like that, yeah. Okay. And the, you think the, that's the climax of the movie because he just disarmed the right, bomb, right? Right, But no, because Khan is still alive, so we have to go tie up that loose end. Uh, Octopus, he goes back to India and uh, uses her, uh, uses her <laughs> feminine uh, skills to get Kamal Khan to be distracted. And Bond swoops in. There's this like bizarre scene where Q, the guy with all the gadgets, he gets kind of a lot of screen time in this. Yeah. He, and he's, him and Bond are in this balloon that has a giant Union Jack like pattern on the outside. And it's just like, it's just like way too on the nose. And it's like these two old men like arguing over who's going to park the car. And like they're... <laughs> They they like try to land the balloon in the uh, in the castle area. Q has this scene where like all these women rush up to him. He's like, no, I can't, but maybe later. And it's just creepy. They're all like less than half his age. <laughs> I have to imagine this a, a, is a third, maybe. Yeah, I have to imagine this is like the imperialist fantasy, right? Is you literally just <laughs> drop in from the sky <laughs> in a union jet, wrapped yourself in the flag, and you land there. You save the locals, right. and they just offer their bodies up to you, right? It's I mean, like isn't a re- this it's a really like, dark version of Wizard yeah, of Oz, yeah. <laughs> like with the wizard showing up in? So, uh, so the fight ends up getting onto this airplane that Khan tries to escape, and I actually thought this was one of the better scenes in the movie it was yeah. a pretty good action scene i mean they take off it's an old boeing 247 uh they uh, old like back from the 1930s and they they take off and bond jumps on the uh on the like the elevator he grabs on as After the plane's taking off and climbs off his way yeah right exactly and he climbs his way he's like on the fuselage while the plane is flying but it's actually they have some like uh far away shots that it looked like there were stunt people actually mm-hmm. on the outside mm-hmm. of an Absolutely, airplane yeah. and then bond shuts down one of the engines and it's actually pretty hard to fly a two-engine plane on one engine and the pilots you know you see the plane moving around then the the the, uh, the muscle guy with the turbine comes outside of the airplane there's this fight on the outside of the airplane actually pretty good i think this was for me the high point of the movie mm-hmm. uh, until the part where bond like uh disables one of the controls and uh basically forces this like gentle kind of landing and they jump off this airplane that's going at probably like 200 miles per hour unscathed, uh, Bond and and, uh, and Octopussy, and you see the plane lose control and, and Khan dies at the control. So I, you had me, it was great mm. up until that part where they jump off a plane going like 200 miles per hour and just, and just survive. Like, I would no say not, not unscathed because Bond at the end of the movie, after we, we learned that the Russian general from the beginning of the movie, the guy who says, let's not attack Western Europe, he says, I'm going to disavow any sort of action but kind of, if you return our one of our our crown jewels of the Russian Republic, we'll we'll let this one slide. Although I, MI six should be like, uh, you owe us some 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 reparations right, for right. some hard currency. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so at the end of that, we find out that Bond is in another pleasure barge, and he's all kind of in traction, right? Like his leg is up, <laughs> his arm is broken, he's everything's himself. broken, right? He's right. just out of commission. Now yeah, she's yeah. fine, Octopussy, who now right. they develop a relationship with. A James Bond relationship, so it'll last until the next movie. And she goes, Bond, it's just too bad that you're 
in such pain. Otherwise, we would use the pleasure part of our pleasure barge. And I love it. That just heals him instantly. And he breaks away from his traction, pulls off his cast. And it's like, it was like the something. scene from Forrest Gump where all like the braces come <laughs> off and there's like music and they just make love. And that's how the movie ends. And then at the end of the credits, you see uh, James Bond will return in From of You to a Kill. Which they had to change. They had to drop the, the from from it. They decided from a view to a kill was not as cool as a view to a kill. So and it's also the last time, because they had to make this awkward change, mm. it's the last time uh, the Bond movies did that, where they tell the name of the movie coming up. Yeah, they painted themselves into a corner. You can't do that. Yeah. Exactly. They learned their lesson. So that's it. That's the film. All right, Tim. Well, we're really excited to hear the, uh, yeah, whether this the, this whole clowning around with the nuclear weapon, what that, uh, you know, what that bears to reality. So. All right. Well, after this, we'll get into it. So now it's time to get super critical. So a quick summary in case people took a break between the plot discussion and then our nuke discussion. Bond is tasked with tracking down the origin of some fake Fabergé eggs and how the Soviets might be involved because, you know, it's the 1980s. They're involved in anything that's nefarious. He swindles his way into a Fabergé farmer's market. Bond creepily stalks a woman all the way to New Delhi where he cheats at dice and annoys an Afghan prince into kidnapping him until Bond escapes and joins an octopus cult. Bond train hops over to Germany, and there he learns that a rogue Soviet general plans to detonate a nuke on a U.S. Air Force base in West Germany, tricking people into thinking that it was an accident with U.S. nuclear weapons in jump-starting unilateral nuclear disarmament. Bond disarms the bomb, dressed as a clown, returns to India, and saves Octopussy by hijacking an airplane. That's the film. Let's get into the, the nuke discussion. And I'm, I'm really curious to hear what you guys think about this story because it's very convoluted. I think there's some fun story here. And I'm glad that you guys tolerated, of all the Bond movies we could have watched today, letting me want to talk about this one because I find this one really interesting. I think the movie has an incredible hot take on the value of nuclear weapons because it's one of the first Bond movies that I can think of, maybe the only one that essentially takes a stance on whether or not nuclear weapons are good or bad. Like the movie says, if Western Europe did not have nuclear weapons stationed in Europe, the Russians are just waiting to invade mm. with their conventional forces. So all of these people, these you know real life people who are as part of these protest movements to maybe not necessarily, some of them are, but you know to get rid of nuclear weapons, but some of them are just like, hey, maybe stop testing them in the atmosphere. Mm. Or, hey, maybe do we need like, 20,000 of them? Can we maybe have maybe a 1,000 of them? You know, some reasonable um, arms control agreements, things to reduce the number of weapons. Uh, no, all of those people are just dupes that if given their wishes, they'll be speaking Russian the following year. Because I can't think of any other Bond movies that do that. Bond movies that have nuclear bombs in them, usually it's to stop someone from using them in a, in a terrible way, but they mm. don't say that the weapons themselves are good or bad. Mm. I just thought that was kind of an interesting take. Yeah. Um, well, what's, I mean, what's your thinking? I mean, do you, going back to that time, I mean, do you think that this was the only thing that was keeping us from a Russian invasion or more geopolitical nuance? Well, I think it definitely uh, had a role in terms of our planning because the next section I was going to talk about here is nukes in Europe 
and the tricky things about nuclear deterrence. And the biggest issue at the time is, you know, at the end of World War II, the United States, you know, took a little while to get into World War II. And World War II was finished and people were tired of fighting wars. You had World War I, which depleted Europe of many of its young people. Um, and World War II happened so quickly afterwards. People were very tired about wanting to fight another war. And, but the Cold War was in process and the Russians had such a large conventional force. You know, the movie's not that far off from seeing, you know, they had a 10 to one ratio. Maybe it wasn't exactly that, but they had a lot of tanks and they had a lot of things stationed right next to, to Europe. And, you know, even though that the, the Soviet Union was an ally during World War II, they were concerned about what, what was gonna happen. So how do you convince Europe, you know, our allies in Europe, and how do you convince the Russians that no, we are going to defend uh, against any sort of an evasion that you do of, your, of Western Europe, right? Because the situation we have here, Germany is divided between East and West. And then there's Berlin itself, the capital is divided. Right. Within uh -huh. Eastern East Germany, mm -hmm. there's a Western East Berlin yeah. that is essentially administratively controlled by the different acts. So that's like, it's a pretty scary situation to be in. And there, there was a thought that the Soviets would, because of their ideological you know, manifest destiny of what they need to do to secure their own power mm -hmm. uh, and they want to spread communism, that they, this was going to happen. But So how do you convince someone that says, uh, well, the United States was slow to get into World War II. They have some troops stationed here, but when, when, it, when push comes to shove, are they going to be there? Are they going to essentially trade, especially after the Russians got nuclear weapons? Because they got nuclear weapons in 1949. And they had the ability to deliver them not too far after that. Hmm. How would they? How would you convince them that we would essentially risk New York City right. for saving Paris? What I, what I don't understand, though, I mean, in terms of the nuclear weapons, what's the significance, though, of if you – this movie seems to say, like, oh, any kind of, like, disarmament mm -hmm. is going to open the door. And, and I don't know what this movie says about, like, nuclear weapons actually stationed on the border, but – isn't it as long as you have some like just having some is enough to to send the message like you know well, maybe yeah like like how how would this how would this kind of disarmament cause these problems I, that's what I don't really understand here so NATO had war plans of how they would use nuclear weapons and my reading of those of that history because people have done a lot of great studies on this is what NATO was thinking of doing was essentially going to nuclear weapons fairly quickly. These smaller, non-strategic nuclear weapons. So there's nuclear weapons are divided not really by any sort of yield or how far they travel. It's somewhat related, but there are strategic weapons which you, use, you would use against other nuclear forces. Like the ICBM missiles are essentially mm. considered strategic. They target military bases in another country. They target uh, cities. They could target things like that. They're really far away. Usually these are larger bombs. And then we have tactical nuclear weapons yeah. or non-strategic bombs. Yeah. These are things that, that are relatively low yield. I mean, they're larger than the bombs dropped on Japan, but they're way smaller than 100 yeah. kilotons. Good for, say, like a circus, right? <laughs> exactly. Right, right. A circus-sized uh, bomb. Uh, and these are things like, you know, you hear about backpack nuclear bombs. I mean, that's, that's kind of what they were, but they were also things that you would launch off of artillery. Mm -hmm. uh, you would drop them from airplanes, but they were smaller bombs. Uh, you know, somewhere under, maybe it's I mean, anywhere between under a kiloton to, uh, you know, under 50 kilotons, depending on the need. And these were battlefield bombs. These were bombs that you would be used on the battlefield. There's a tank battalion approaching. You either attack the tank battalion gotcha. with a nuclear weapon, or you attack the area in front of the tank battalion mm. and ir radiate that area so they can't travel through it. And then they're stuck, or they'll have to go around and then much like the movie 300, where they kind of funnel all of the large Persian forces through a very small path so that their numbers don't really matter as right. much. I mean, that was kind of a little bit of the plan. 
to use these things. But really the idea was we had nuclear weapons. Uh, we'd be willing to use these smaller ones quickly to convince the Russians that, look, we are serious about you not invading Western Europe. And there would escalate this to de-escalate it. Mm. And that was the, that thought process was. That was the only thing the Russians would respond. If Russians were in a conventional war with, with Western forces, even as advanced as they may have been at the time, the Western forces, they, we would get overwhelmed mm. in the West. So the idea was nuclear weapons, you would use them quickly, and then you would have in the reserve these strategic bombs. So it wouldn't be like the Terminator movie where we just start mis- launching missiles right. from – montana to moscow it'd be this smaller conflict that hopefully would stay limited to convince them the russians that is not to go any further so that was part of the plan of what they would use these things for so how many you would need for that you know it depends on what the war planner thought would be necessary maybe five wouldn't do it but would would you need seven thousand of them which is what the peak eventually was maybe not that's an interesting point and it's kind of a question i had uh thinking about the movie why why would the disarmament of europe matter mm-hmm. if you could still launch an icbm from montana right. which is kind of what i was thinking but i mean that that's a perfect explanation right that well is that disarmament... you know, is, it, is it credible right right like if you're saying if you if you move your forces into western europe i'm all of a sudden going to destroy moscow mm-hmm. because is that is that a credible threat because really what then moscow mm-hmm. is going to say is great so we're going to destroy you and now it's gone so that's kind of what Orlov was saying, was they wouldn't risk using their strategic forces against us. We would just respond right back. So this is really just about primarily tactical nukes in Europe. That's how I read okay. most of this story. I mean, it's unclear because that's what we were talking about earlier. Talk what, what, do they, what do they say this anti-nuclear uh, weapons movement, what was their end going to be, their end game? Unclear. Right. And and like you said, I mean, there was there was some uncertainty as to whether they're just talking about nukes or are they talking about conventional weapons because clearly there were other ways. Right. I mean, the fact that there is a circus happening at a uh, at a U.S. Air Force base in Germany, like we had other presence there other than nuclear weapons. Like in in theory, that doesn't go away just because like the it just doesn't leave you know open season. Although there was that map that showed that they have the yeah. huge. Which by the way, is that a real thing? I mean, did they have a huge kind of ground advantage? Oh, in absolutely, terms of, okay. it was huge. I mean, we, we leaned very heavily uh, during much of the Cold War on our nuclear weapons stationed in Europe because of the conventional superiority of the Soviet Union. It, it took a lot of time for that, uh, to, that dynamic to change. But remember, too, nuclear weapons aren't just weapons in this scenario. They're also political tools. Mm. They're things that we, we as the United States and what we think some of the people in Europe have associated as political symbols. They're a, the outward sign of our trust and our willingness to work together. So some of the other things that we did during the Cold War to convince Europe and the Russians that we were serious about this were things like stationing thousands and thousands and thousands of U.S. troops in Europe, Hmm. kind of as a tripwire. If the Russians wanted to invade Western Europe, they would have to kill U.S. troops and their families Hmm. at these military bases. So therefore, the American public would definitely call for the United States. Exactly. That was incredibly expensive to station that many troops. We Hmm. don't have that many there now, but we still have a good number of troops there. My brother, for example, in the end of this year is going to Stuttgart uh, Army Base in, mm. in Germany. So they still have, we have a large number of military bases, Air Force, uh, Army, Well, still how many in troops we have in South Korea? Same, yeah. similar idea. I mean, yeah. 40,000 or so, yeah. right? I mean, we had even more before, and we had and we used to have nuclear weapons there mm-hmm. until the early 90s when they got pulled back. Mm. Uh, so we did that, and um, again, expensive, and you can argue whether or not it was moral, because essentially you're using these people as booby traps. Right. Uh, we put a bunch of U.S. base U.S. nukes on bases in the area, and uh, and it was kind of unclear to the Russians 
whether or not NATO forces that aren't U.S. forces had the ability to just take those bombs, put them on a tornado airplane jet mm. where they're on nowadays, and, and drop them. Now, there were these dual share agreements where the European forces couldn't use them without us also agreeing. But the idea was, in a time of crisis, we would pre-delegate the authority for them to be used so that it wasn't even up to us anymore. It was up to the local forces. And there are disputes about how far we went with that, but that was what we tried to signal to the Russians. Yeah. With. Would you let your teenage like daughter use your car? That's the. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of, yeah, it was the, a big piece of it. We also tried to develop strong economic and cultural ties with Europe during this time. So that it would make it clear that if Europe were to be taken over by the Soviet Union, it would be a gigantic cultural and economic loss to the United States. So therefore, it's within our U.S. interest to come into a fight. So hmm. you do all these trying to, these things to tie us together. And you see a lot in the United States today where there's a counter, more nationalist focused yep. view of wanting to be America first and pull away some of our forces. So you see a pushback to that today. And a lot of that, the roots of the conflict came in from the Cold War when we started to do all this stuff. Well, and more speaking to the political times today, like you heard Donald Trump as a candidate talk about the rest of the NATO countries aren't pulling mm -hmm. their weight and like clearly putting this, uh, this wedge in between Europe and the United States. And it wasn't to say that back in the day during the Cold War that everything was fine yeah. between the United States and Europe. There yeah. was definitely some conflicts and differences of opinion on how far to take a nuclear war, and, and there are definitely these protest movements. Even despite these differences, so the U.S. started, uh, and its allies started forward deploying nuclear weapons, so like bringing them to the battlefield, like close to the front lines of where a conflict could take place in Europe, in 1953. And in 1971 was the peak of the largest number. It was 7,300 of these nuclear weapons wow. were in Europe at various places, in Greece, in the United Kingdom, in Belgium, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, and Turkey. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the Cold War, however, in Europe, the number of U.S. bombs dropped to 4,000 in 1990, right? Kind of as the mm -hmm. Cold War was finishing. 700 in 1992. So huge drop mm -hmm. between 90 and 92. And then dropped even further in 1994 to just 450 weapons. Are there any still today, you think? I yes. Mean, okay. Mm -hmm. So some really? small complement. Do you think that's gone up from the... the... Well, uh, there's about 180. Okay. okay. Um, as of, I think, around as of 2014. I mean, these aren't things that are incredibly advertised. We advertise the number of strategic weapons we have as part of arms control agreements. Mm. We, we know how many we have. We know how many the other side has. And as part of a transparency, what's called strategic stability, we know how many they have, so we don't have to build any more than we need. And we, as we mentioned earlier on some of our other episodes, like uh, the uh, our episode we did recently on Star Trek, like we know where all of our ICBM missile fields are at, for example. We advertise it. Because we want the Soviets then and the Russians now and other countries to target them because it means that they have to use their own nuclear force to get to ours mm -hmm. so that it creates targets that aren't cities. Non-strategic weapons are more of a mystery because they're battlefield tactics. So if we say we have this many in here where they all are at any given moment, then they're easier to target in the field during a conflict. So mm -hmm. different than these large strategic weapons. So we have about 180 around today at different places. And these are all, I mean, the the still purpose of these is deterrence with Russia, basically? Mostly. Okay. I mean, that's the big, okay. that's the big mission. I mean, they would never go out and say, this is targeted towards Russia, but that's largely one of NATO's missions is to, pro is to protect against uh, Russian forces. I mean, this was a big conflict during the 90s when the Cold War ended and Russia was wondering why NATO was still around. And it's a huge conflict uh, and motivator for uh, Vladimir Putin. Yeah. I mean, yeah. NATO expansion really made him angry, 
uh, when we brought uh, NATO right to the border mm-hmm. of Russia. Mm-hmm. And Russia nowadays, uh, it's kind of this interesting flip. The Russian conventional forces have gone through an incredible decay, not having as much money as they did during the Cold War to keep the to basically keep soldiers paid, keep the, the latest and greatest uh, conventional forces. So their numbers have dropped. And now they're the ones who rely so heavily on non-strategic nuclear weapons. They have thousands of them left in, mm. in, in the area. And we only have 180. So it's a complete reverse. They're worried about advanced conventional forces by NATO, especially after the first Gulf War and later on in the, in the war in Iraq. Mm. They saw how fast NATO forces worked, basically how good these were. And so they're worried about that. So they rely pretty heavily on nuclear weapons as a, you know, as a, uh, an, a per- all-purpose equalizer. But also, it's a little bit easier to, you know, even nuclear weapons are expensive, but maybe they're not as expensive as an entire tank battalion. Right, right. If you maintain these older uh, non-strategic weapons along the border. And uh, during the Cold War, we had all kinds of different bombs. I think I mentioned earlier, we had things that were on artillery shells that would be fired from cannons. Uh, we had short and medium-range uh, nuclear missiles. We had bombs that were on ships, on submarines that were battlefield. Uh, we had nuclear mines that we would put on the ground. We had nuclear underwater mines that ships would run into. Uh, gravity bombs dropped from airplanes. Nuclear bazookas. Uh, even backpack nuclear bombs that would be some guy would, would have a backpack. And it's not like a, a Vans sport <laughs> backpack. It's a, it's a big thing. It's kind of like a, an oil drum. And you stick it to your back and you... Run you it's carry it it's very heavy and you drop it put it on a timer and you get the heck out of there and it goes off uh, and stops forces from coming over that mm. was usually the plan back in the day I bet a few of the guys at the former job that had that job during the Cold War they must have good good chiropractors uh, they had good yeah good backs <laughs> they probably lead CrossFit classes these days yeah so okay so that's kind of like the movies. Um, stance how is that like so this is translated through the plot mm-hmm. in this in this kind of wacky plan and i i mean is this like how, how does this work because i help help alex and i out here yeah. we're, we're really not seeing it well, i have i have a lot of problems with the orlov plan and not just the idea of of the value of nuclear weapons in this process but you know i'm willing to say i'm sure nuclear weapons played a big role in the soviet planning and they'd have to account for it and if they didn't have it might be a little bit easier. If we didn't have nuclear weapons in Europe, it doesn't say that we couldn't have completed that mission otherwise, um, but we would have had to do a lot more. We had to station a lot more troops, mm-hmm. conventional forces. So here's my problems with Orlov's plan, and I would love to get your guys' takes on these as well. Even if nuclear weapons were pulled from Europe, the U.S. still has an a incredible number of nuclear weapons that are in the area or right. these strategic bombs. So even if they're withdrawn from Europe, they can still bring them back in the course of a conflict. Well, I think I think Orlov said, well, we can roll over Europe in five days. Maybe that's a little uh, ambitious. And even during the Cold War, U.S. nuclear weapons that were these non-strategic were never the only option. They were just the first option. Mm. If that didn't work, the plans were always to use strategic forces mm. later on, the, the kind of larger bombs. Yeah. The French have nuclear weapons. I was going to ask about that because yep. the Brits had them too. The Brits have them. They still cooperate. Mm-hmm. But maybe the idea was that these... These peace movements would just overwhelm all of our planning and would create divisions between NATO. So NATO wouldn't be able to respond at all. But they, they would still have their weapons. And you know what? It takes if you if they were to all agree today to disarm their nuclear weapons, it would take a years before all of that stuff was done. Mm. So I don't know how long Orlov's uh, time horizons were. His window of opportunities would be many years in the future, even if they agreed today to get rid of nuclear weapons. It would take a little bit of time for them to all be 
dismantled. The, the, it could be moved away, but they they have to be dismantled. That would take a while. Though that, that those were the two huge holes that stood out to me in his plan is that so one the idea was right that he was going to blow up this weapon and people would think it was an accidental right. explosion by a U.S. bomb, right? Some so U.S. NATO something. Huge assumption, right? I feel like at that time, I mean, not being an expert on the politics of the time, but I feel like the assumption would be that, like, the Soviets got one past us and set one off. Mm-hmm. Exa- like, exactly what happened, right? The other thing, too, is relying on a uh, the domestic politics of the United States and Western Europe that, like, a peace disarmament movement would would be able to convince people to immediately disarm nuclear weapons mm-hmm. i mean you know the like during the vietnam war i mean how long did that drag on and there there was a That's very a active peace movement in the united states the notion that um this would give them the kind of event they needed to finally have success in congress and parliament and stuff like that Hmm. is well, well, so, fantastical. So obviously this had, this didn't happen. Like a nuclear bomb didn't go off and we have attribution problems about where it came from. Mm-hmm. Like that never ended up happening. But we had some things that were pretty close that ended up happening in Europe that we were, can, can kind of see what the reaction might have been uh, in the real world. So one example is in 1966, the Palomares incident. A B-52 was carrying four nuclear bombs, these large hydrogen bombs. So big, big ones. Big, big yeah. ones. It broke up uh, during a mid-air refueling when it was with the KC-135 tanker. The KC-135 just broke up and instantly kind of exploded because it was full of fuel. And the B-52 broke up, killed uh, all of the seven of the crew, pretty much everybody, and it split apart. And the bombs fell out. Uh, Three of them were found on the ground uh, near a small fishing village. And the two of them... Conventional explosives inside the bomb that trigger the chain mm-hmm. reaction, like they so they compress yep. the nuclear material so that it's in a critical position. And I like at a certain point we it don't... goes super critical. Exactly. So I, and I love how at a certain point we don't have to really explain these things because people will just know about it from the prior episodes. But maybe you're coming into it new. But you know, there's conventional explosives inside of it that trigger the conditions that allow a, for the an expl- s- nuclear explosion. Yeah, exactly. Those went off, but they have to go off in a very particular way for it to work. Over the course of a 0.8 square mile area, uh, because of this conventional explosive, uh, contaminated the area with plutonium. So this definitely, this happened off the coast of Spain. I mean, was this how the weapon was designed? I mean, I feel like there'd be uh, some sort of failsafe that would... There are tons of failsafes, and that prevented the bomb from becoming detonating. But the part of the failsafe is you could still end up with some contamination. Like, this was expected. It wouldn't be a nuclear explosion. A full full nuclear explosion where there's a chain reaction and the fissile material is used. What's the idea behind a dirty bomb, right? It's essentially a dirty bomb, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, a inefficient dirty bomb. You set off a, a conventional explosion with nuclear material. It doesn't right. create a nuclear reaction, but it spreads contaminants in the in the air. Exactly. So this happened. This happened off is over the Mediterranean Sea, off the coast of Spain, and the fourth bomb was eventually recovered underwater after a couple of months looking for it. Uh, there's a similar incident that happened off the coast of the Carolinas in the United States, where a B-52 broke up and one of the bombs just planted itself in, on U.S. soil. And of all of the fail-safes that exist, because there's lots of fail-safes in these older bombs, every all of them but one or two basically failed. And there was two wow. that were left. It was essentially whether or not the bomb, at the very beginning, the, the bombardier has to turn arm or not arm. 
it was switched to not arm because that's the default position. Mm. But at any point during the accident, so. it could have maybe switched over. Yeah. What well, yeah. used to be is interesting. So the bombs are on these times they were they were on racks, and the bombs would have to fall out of the back of the airplane and then they would parachute down or, or however the fin worked there the way the bomb army mechanism was it was just to, to avoid this there were certain cords like little strings that were attached to the bomb rack and the bomb would fall out and the cords were a varying length and they had to be pulled at just the what? right sequence for the bomb to be triggered so therefore if a bomb like what hadn't happening the, the plane broke up so the bombs kind of fell straight down yeah but still, of one of the bombs in this Palomari's accident triggered a couple of the different sequences, but then it failed because it was the wrong one. Wow. So it, it was it was close. So we got pretty close, and clearly this upset Spain. It upset a lot of people, but it was just another one of these accidents that happen in the course of de- defending countries that these bombs protect. You know, it's part of the, the Cold War system of mm-hmm. strategic deterrence. That was how it was described and portrayed and spun by the, the powers that be. So this was an incident that happened, and and but this, so it was this, used by the protest movements, but it didn't wasn't so successful. this. But but this did not trigger a wholesale uh, kind of you know disarmament. But right. over time, though, because you were talking earlier about the numbers dwindling down. Yeah, I mean, is that kind of what happened, or well, it did happen, but not the same way that Orloff initially planned. What kind of led to the consolidation of all of these, you know, hundreds of different bases, where we had uh, nuclear weapons, we had seven hundred and fifty storage sites. In the 1970s, in Europe, and some weren't as secure as others, as you can imagine. So they decided, because of a, a rash of t- a terrorist incidents in Europe, what if someone tries to steal one of these things? Mm. Drop a bomb somewhere or bring it on a ship to a port, and who would know where it came from? No one would know mm-hmm. kind of what, what ended up happening with mm-hmm. it. So that was always the, the fear. So they decided to consolidate the number of locations to a much smaller number. Hmm. Uh, and we still have problems like that today. So we have some of our nuclear weapons stationed in Turkey, in a particular part of Turkey, in, in the southeast part of the country, where oh. uh, there's a lot of internal division. And right next door, there's a lot of uh, ISIS-related activity. So yeah. people are worried about weapons being based there. Today, even, right, we have this crisis that's happening in Spain. In, in Catalonia, we have this difference of opinion about who operates Catalonia, whether or not it will continue to remain uh, largely autonomous after the referendum. The, yeah. the the leadership in Spain wants to strip them of that ability. Well, we have nuclear weapons still stationed in Spain. So what happens there? I mean, maybe no one's going to try to steal them, but it's it's is it safe to keep these weapons in places where there's like civil strife mm. that's currently happening? Uh, and this was all part of the reason why in September 1991, you know, near the end of the Cold War where people felt it was safe to do this, President George H.W. Bush said we would eliminate all of U.S. ground launch short-range theater nuclear weapons. Uh, we would get rid of those. We would bring home and destroy all U.S. nuclear artillery shells that were stationed around the world and short-range ballistic missile warheads. We would drew all of our tactical nuclear weapons from surface ships and attack submarines as well as those tactical nuclear weapons associated with U.S. land-based naval uh, aircraft. All of those things were pulled, and they were pulled unilaterally, hoping that the Russians uh, would follow suit. And in a way, they did, uh, but not entirely. And that's why today we have this role reversal where the Russians have a 10-to-1 ratio of tactical nuclear weapons in Europe. And that's one of the reasons why people... Uh, that are very strong uh, proponents of nuclear weapons in Europe say we should have even more because mm. the Russians have this many and they're, they're going to think that they can win a, a nuclear battle if it takes place because they have so many in the field. And then these 
wars that end up taking place won't, won't last long enough for the U.S. to bring in more. That's really interesting. I, I want to go back to the backpack bombs mm-hmm. you were talking about because you, you talked about them being used in sort of like to you know head off a tank battalion or something like that right but orlov's plan i mean he, what he thought was going to happen was weird and a lot of holes but like you could sort of see a plan here where as the soviets or as the americans you do try to smuggle in a nuclear weapon to moscow or new york or london mm. or whatever and like set it off i mean was there anything like that i mean we talk about this in the context of terrorism now but during the cold war was there this this fear right of a smuggled you couldn't right. you couldn't see where it was fired off from it would just sort of happened it was like the ultimate sneak attack i think people were definitely worried by that because yeah. the idea though would that be a starting point for a larger invasion would mm-hmm. it be a, a precursor to a strategic full-on nuclear attack where missiles start going so maybe you bring in a a weapon into the Pentagon, or mm-hmm. you can sneak a weapon near, you know, where the president is, and there's confusion about what's happening, and you use that confusion to disrupt and mm. start another attack. Maybe that certainly was a worry about that, but that's why we created these incredibly complex command and control systems. So if the president is taken out, immediately there's training that was been done beforehand, and immediately control uh, gets shifted to the vice president. And like there's these procedures. That take place so you can't just decapitate one of our leaders. You want to take out the president, you take out the vice president and everyone down the line. Mm-hmm. And there's a you know if all of those are taken out, there's still things that they can do uh, in case that happens. If you take out all of these, so there's we have our missile fields, for example, in in the middle part of our country, like in Montana, uh, in North Dakota, you know, part of this Wyoming, uh, Colorado area. Mm-hmm. We have them there, and their missiles today. There are all these missile fields, and then there's like usually one launch facility, the guys that are actually in the bunker, uh, guys and gals that are in the bunker, and then push the buttons. If you take those, all of those out, say you just dis- you just dis- destroy all of those, we can still launch those missiles with aircraft. There's this aircraft that will fly and that can use remote sensing and can get into the the silos and, and launch the weapons that way. So we have all these like complex checks wait so someone can fly over it, and like mm-hmm. launch the mis- air launch control uh, system essentially it's an airplane that yeah th- they have a couple of them they'll fly over the missile bases and launch the missiles from there so it's you have all of these things if you're a country that wants to first strike the united states and stop it from being able to use its own forces you have to overcome all of these different barriers mm. if that's the plan mm. and you want to be able to do that so the idea this is a long way of answering your question of did we worry about the Russians sneaking attacking. It's like, what was the purpose behind it? Is it like a plan like this? So another movie with another James Bond actor, Fourth Protocol, stars, I think it's 1987, Pierce, oh, Piercey B, Pierce Brosnan. Terrific actor, one of my favorite Bonds. But uh, this particular film, it's the same plot, It's like, but it's the actual Soviet leadership that forced him into doing this plan to start nuclear disarmament. So clearly it was on people's minds. The nuclear disarmament movement was there. So if you want to think about it as a political motive for why this would take place, as opposed to it just being a, a screw you, the United States having a bomb go off kind of randomly in some city. Right. Cause you have to understand like, what's the purpose behind it? Because if there is attribution back to them, right. You have to wonder what the next step would be, right. um, which is kind of why today there, the fields of maybe you've heard of this nuclear forensics, it's it's the idea of you know forensics, the idea of like CSI type stuff about yeah. finding who was murdered and using DNA evidence and solving a crime 
nuclear forensics is a similar science, trying to break down the origins of if a nuclear bomb goes off or there's a nuclear accident somewhere, using science to map out where that bomb came from, where the material came from, what it is, what's going to happen, whether it actually was a nuclear explosion or was it just a large conventional explosion. I mean, this science is continuing to advance. It's very hard to do it. I was at a Barksdale Air Force Base near Shreveport, Louisiana, a Mm -hmm. couple weeks ago, and a guy from the Army was giving this really cool presentation on the state of nuclear forensics. And he used this line. I think I've heard it before, but it's, Imagine if you explode a cake with conventional explosives mm. and then ask someone to use all the various elements of the cake, the ingredients that have been exploded and changed into new elements and trying to figure out and tell that person, all right, here's who baked the cake. Here's mm. where it came from. Here's where the ingredients are. It's a kind of a similar idea because nuclear explosions, when they take place, they're very hot. They melt things. They change elements. Working your way backwards from there can maybe say, well, this bomb material probably most likely came from – Europe mm-hmm. or came from uh, the Soviet Union because they use this type of plutonium than we do different types of plutonium. So you might be able to trace it back. But at least in the in the movie, that guy, the spectacled Soviet commander, said this is indistinguishable from the U.S. weapons. So whatever that means, however they did that, at least they were confident in their ability well, to Well, using it. technology at the time. Maybe Science. it wasn't as yeah. sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. You hear a lot about demonstrations that took place during the Cold War. Uh from the campaign for nuclear disarmament. We talked about that in one of our Star Trek episodes. It was the one we did on the city on the edge of forever episode. Uh, we talked about that. And we talked about that also in our fail safe episode. I think it was episode 10 or so of the podcast, but you check out that. And also the one episode we did on the movie threads, which was a British film. You, we talked about the UK perspective of these anti-nuclear weapon movements. They had a very strong active following for sure, right around this time. The, they held the record, actually, for the largest ever protest gathering for years and years and years until, you know, earlier this year with the Women's March on Washington mm. that broke that record was okay. a previously a anti-nuclear weapons movement. Are there – I mean, with all this talk about nukes in North Korea, I mean, is there – is the anti-nuclear weapon, like the disarmament thing, is that is that coming back at all or not really? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's unclear. The recent people who just won the Nobel Peace Prize – where a, a collection of, of a group, a coalition called the International Campaign Against N- Nuclear Weapons, mm-hmm. ICANN, a Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating and pushing a nuclear weapons ban treaty at the United Nations. There is now a treaty that has been negotiated and is open for signature and people starting to sign it that bans nuclear weapons on from a lot of different wow. levels. And you can say, well, the nuclear weapons uh, treaty that has been from 1970, the, the non-proliferation treaty, says uh, countries that have weapons will get rid of them and those that don't won't get them and it's a large complicated treaty but this new one literally makes nuclear weapons illegal Hmm. will the united states ever sign this probably not uh but their efforts similar to when president obama won a nobel peace prize his first year as being for being president because Hmm. of his vision for a world free of nuclear weapons it's an aspirational award so clearly it's in the the ethos people are talking about it but in europe because there was definitely a conflict between different groups within the anti-nuclear movement. So kind of Orloff in the movie describes this as a a movement that's growing and it's unified and it's just waiting for the right excuse to convince all of the people in Europe and all of the leadership in Europe to get rid of their weapons. Well, that really wasn't the case. There was a group in Europe called END, E-N-D, which was European uh, Nuclear Disarmament group this is from 1982 to 1991 they were incredibly active so during the time period 
when this movie is supposed to take place, their mission was to move Europe towards a, quote, nuclear-free Europe from Poland to Portugal. And they were very active. They had held lots of big conferences. They didn't take sides during the Cold War, so they didn't say, like, the West or the East was was the, the right moral leader in this, which was different than the campaign for nuclear disarmament because the campaign for nuclear disarmament was as good as it was it definitely had some leftist leanings it probably said more like the west was causing all these conflicts than than the soviet union and was like no the soviets are really causing a lot of these problems with their their provocations and they're the ones that should lead a lot of this efforts to disarm see that would have been a more interesting plot if like the soviets had like infiltrated mm. and then like yeah like forced the i don't know like something you know like they're the ones driving the you know the the disarmament that would have been more clever than just like oh let's detonate a bomb at a circus on an, an air force base well how many fabric eggs can you have in that story because really people wanted fabric you can't but, but think about it. james bond he could like fall in love with some like hippie chicks uh he mm. could yeah dress in like um you know non-traditional garb i think there's there's potential there more non-traditional than a gorilla suit or a clown outfit <laughs> uh okay well so this this group this end group they probably would have been less likely to be you know, manipulated by this Soviet actions should it have worked because they definitely weren't in favor of unilateral nuclear disarmament. They wanted both sides to follow through with a negotiated, verifiable agreement where they would both have zero at the same time, not one side having some and the other side not having any yeah. at all. The 1987 saw a an intermediate-range nuclear forces treaty, the INF Treaty, which Reagan negotiated to ban essentially an entire class of weapons like these medium-range uh, missiles. So mm -hmm. instead of the ones that travel intercontinental from the United States to Moscow, these are like from Turkey to Moscow. Gotcha. And they were very dangerous because they traveled very quickly to their destinations. And the Soviet Union had a bunch of them that really worried us in, in Europe. And that was the same of the similar things that ended up happening at the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis was we agreed to get rid of our uh, weapons stations, our Jupiter missiles in Turkey. Mm -hmm. Those are kind of the similar setups there. Once that INF treaty was negotiated, that was one of N's big ticket items. And after they got a win, ironically, it caused their group to dissolve a little bit because they got what they wanted oh, and they didn't have enough. Uh, I mean, they, they basically succeeded to the point where they no longer had a job. It's all about the journey and not the destination. Exactly. So, but, yeah. So, all right. So, so we talked about like the real world part of that. Um, I guess one thing we were wondering is that this movie bomb, mm -hmm. and there was this like tie, it's like a hundred kilotons, and you have to be twenty miles away, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, is that is that nonsense, or is that nuclear nonsense, or? Well, I appreciate the, the question because I got into this. It's, I, it's always one of my favorite things to do. If there's an actual bomb in the film where they describe little details, like I always remember True Lies, Arnold Schwarzenegger with his thick Austrian accent describing like the intricate nature of a particular bomb, like the yield ratio, here's where it comes <laughs> from, all that. It's always, that cracks me up because sometimes it's just non, it's just nonsense words and you wonder who wrote it. Cause, but like why even say anything at all? Like why – you just have to say this is a nuclear weapon and people will like crap their pants. That's a very good point. Why commit to anything? Because there's probably certain buzzwords. You say the word thermonuclear, people's ears perk up. You say kiloton. Kiloton. Those are always things people pick up. When else do Americans hear the word kiloton? Right. <laughs> it's it's like only to describe nuclear weapons. Yeah, except for like a meal at Arby's or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I I got into this trying to figure out what they describe and whether or not it's accurate. Uh, you know, accurate as much as you can be in a James Bond movie. It, it's another one of those films that takes 
uh, liberties with some things, but is incredibly accurate about other things. So like Karls Markstad, for example, is definitely a, a real city in eastern in East Germany where there was a lot of military bases, and that's where the they they think they switched the bomb from the jewelry container mm. to the the nuclear bomb itself. But then they make up a fictional Air Force base, uh, Failstat Air Force base, where this circus seems to take place, and it kind of. Because of uh, one of the internet tried to find out exactly where this place was because I wanted to find out if you could sh- trigger a bomb to go off in four hours, where where is that four hour location could be? Because because oh, wow. remember that that train went somewhere, yeah, unloaded some stuff, some stuff like some of their things like some of their props. Maybe yeah. the tent was set up somewhere else, but an entire group of people, the like audience had to come in and they started the show all within four hours. Yeah, and also, can we just say, like, this train was not tested. There were no, they didn't, like, run a Geiger counter over it. There yeah. was no, like, hey, let's <laughs> let this circus in. They're good people. Like, carnies and clowns never hurt anybody. Exactly. Well, they, they definitely didn't look at the, the bottom of the, the cannon, the human cannonball machine. Uh, but so it looks like, based on that distance and some of the other stuff, the someone did some some sleuthing and saw that all the license plates in this town had an N next to it, which probably it, in that in Germany N means and license plate means Nuremberg. So mm. that's where it's near. So it's somewhere in Bavaria, which is like the southern part of yep. Germany. Uh, and we had we but we've never had a U.S. Air Force base in Bavaria, nor did we ever station nuclear weapons in that part of Germany. Most of our nuclear weapons were stationed far uh, far west on the western side, so that was farther away for the Soviets to get to them. Hmm. That's kind of where we station stuff. But in, in the real world today, uh, we have 20 B-61 warheads. These are the gravity bombs, the ones that we have stationed in Europe. Today, these are dial yields, so you can go really low yields, relatively low yields, wow. or all the way it's up like to those 300. Mattress, it's like the mattresses, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like, what's your sleep number? Yeah, exactly. What's your forever what's sleep, sleep number? number? <laughs> uh, so we have those stationed at uh, Buchel. Air Force Base uh, in in Germany in Western Germany, which is pretty far from Bavaria. Pretending that it's in Nuremberg, I used the trusty tool that we use in all these podcasts, NukeMap. This was designed um, by a professor, uh, Alex Wellerstein, at Stevens College, and he has a th- you can plug in what kind of bomb you want, where you want the the bomb to be placed. Maybe it's your your high school uh, bully, and you want to nuke their town and see what it's like. You can plug in all these different figures, and it will tell you. What the the computer algorithms will say uh, should be the reality. So we, I lean on them because that's fun because you can replicate that at home. Da 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 da. All, plug in all that stuff in there. A 100 kiloton bomb in Nuremberg. Here's what the blast effects would be. Because remember in the movie they say get 20 miles away. Fireball, the kind of initial uh, mass kinetic explosion, would go about with that kind of ground burst because you assume it's on the ground because it's at the circus. 1640 feet uh, of a mm. radius there. So that's okay. Pretty far, but it's not 20 miles. Right. That's that's the initial worry you have. Then you have your air blast ratio. So for 20 psi, this is a level of pressure that can knock over even concrete buildings. That goes out 0.63 miles. So anything within that radius, you know, then you kind of draw a circle with it, is is pretty much knocked over. Radiation radius. So where there's this burst of gamma radiation that if with if you're within line of sight or honestly even if you're within this range, you're going to get hit pretty hard and it's lethal is lethal out to 1.13 miles. So again, not 20 miles, and this is without any sort of medical treatment. Air blast radius for a 5 PSI pressure, which can knock over most houses, so a lot of residential areas, that only goes out to 1.32 miles. You know, skin, not 20 miles, we're, we're talking about. The farthest out is the thermal radiation, so like heat flashes, 
Burns, the thing we saw in our Terminator episode, right. where uh, Linda Hamilton just kind of caught on fire. That, right, those are these skin and stuff. Exactly. So that's like the thermal radiation within line of sight. That's out to 2.43 miles for th- third-degree burns. So again, not very far. Now, now the question is maybe they're talking about fallout, but it depends entirely on the wind for that particular day and kind of what direction it's going. According to Nuke Map, there'll be a lot of it. Well, there'll be a lot of fallout because it's a ground burst because it basically throws up debris into the air. But depending on the winds, that can reach out to 126 miles. But the worst of it will be 5.3 miles. So again, not 20, but it could be pretty bad around 50 miles. So these right. are like, th- but these the 20, are, these... the 20 seems this seems like random and just too high. It, like... it, it seems too. It's definitely too hard for the immediate bomb effects. If they're talking about fallout, it entirely depends on which way the wind's going. So if you travel 20 miles out in the direction where the radiation, in about an hour or so, 30 minutes to an hour, will start falling down, you're still screwed. Yeah, but you just. That's an easy line of. Di- that's an easy plot thing. You just give them a suit, you know, a, a, a radiation suit, or just a suit that they're not breathing in the stuff, and that takes care of it, right? No, uh, radiation oh. suits wouldn't protect against gamma radiation. Oh, okay. Oops. Yeah, but I think the easier thing to say is prevailing winds today would push the fallout into western Germany. Yeah, that's an easy. It's an easy line of dialogue, and you don't yeah. have to get away with this. Well, it's funny. The default when I when I detonated the bomb in nuke map was it was going right towards the the uh, Karl Marx. Is Karl this Marx like dad. your Friday night that you're like on this program? You're like, hmm, what who am I, I gonna? Yeah, simulations. So yeah. I'm trying to one of my my side projects. This is why I need a, a podcast intern. Is Every single movie where there's a de- detonation of a bomb or potential detonation of a bomb, I want to use Nuke Map, and then there's these maps on Google where you can just kind of plot things. And I was just going to have a whole big map of every time a nuke was used in a movie, and just show like in cinema where bombs have gone off. All right, you heard it, uh, a super critical listeners here. We're hiring for an intern. Yeah. Uh, you're going to have to watch movies with Tim and hiring make new. It would be an unpaid internship. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I'll, I will. I will pay them in like 2 a.m. phone calls about like, guys, I just watched this movie. I need you to do it too because it's freaking out. I need someone to clarify this for me. But yeah, I mean, we also have a nice benefits plan that usually we drink during the podcast like today with the martinis. That is shaken, not stirred. Exactly. Although I'm always shaken up by watching these inaccurate portrayals. In terms of the movie bomb, who who knows kind of what would have happened, but they definitely overestimate the amount of effects that could have happened. And if it was near, I mean, Nuremberg's pretty populated area. There would have been a lot of people that would have died. Uh, it just would not necessarily have been okay for them to be. Well, what we talked about a 15-minute drive out of the city is how far he was going to go. It would have been something to worry about. But so that's it. That's the super critical side to it. Uh, James Bond movies aren't really known for their accuracy of the bombs or the plots involved at all, but they make for fun conversation. Shall we play a game? All right. So we've talked all about the the plot. Talked about the nuke stuff. Let's play a game before we get into our final segment of the podcast here. Uh, we are bringing on a special guest to tag out for Gabe, because Gabe's going to keep score. Ryan, thanks for coming on. He's a, Ryan's a friend of ours who lives in Texas now, uh, but he's back in town for the weekend, and I think he'd be formidable competition for other, other fellow Texan Alex. Well, thank you for having me. This is how this game will work. You know how in most of the James Bond movies there's some sort of a gadget that Q will uh, cook up for James Bond, and it it's just the pen. right thing. Yeah, it's just the right thing yeah. that he needs. In this movie, it's an acid pen mm-hmm. and a camera on a watch and a Fabergé egg tracking device, basically whatever he needs. Well, they're usually pretty ridiculous, something oddball. Well, I've decided to play this game, which is going to be called 
go-go gadget or no-no gadget. And the purpose of the game is I will say a gadget in a quick description, and you describe to me whether or not it's a real device that was used in a James Bond movie, or it's just something that I made up that I think could I could pass off as being in a James Bond movie. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, so we'll, the way we'll play this is I've got, let's see, I've got about, this will be quick. I've got 25 of them, so it'll be real quick. Whoever gets the most will win. I'll say it, and then whoever says their name first will be able to say whether or not it's real or fake. If you get it right, you get a point. If you get it wrong, you get a negative point. So there's a penalty oh, so there, there. there's consequences. Yeah, so you can't just say your name first. Okay. And the winner, because we always have to have a prize, I have two cufflinks here, and they may or may not have tracking devices on them or some sort of a laser. I'm not sure. I got them when I was in Vietnam, so I want that prize. All right, so let's fight for it. So the first one here, the Ghetto Blaster, a boombox that fires a rocket. Alex. All right. Yes. It's, it's a real thing. That would be perfectly satisfactory. It is a real thing. It's from the Timothy Dalton movie, The Living Daylights. Did you know that or was that a guess? It just felt like something that a Bond movie would have. The ghetto blaster. Like trying to be hip, but then failing somehow, uh-huh. you know? Rocket jetpack. Used Ron- to propel Bond when, the, when escaping from an enemy. Ryan. Ryan, what do you got? I'm going to say... It, that seems like it should be a thing, so I'm going to say no-no gadget. <laughs> That's what I call trouble. It's real. It's in the Sean Connery movie Thunderball. So I have negative points. You have negative, negative points. Negative. But what about an underwater jetpack? Alex, that is not a thing. That's what I call trouble. That is absolutely a thing. It's mm-hmm. also in Thunderball. He uses it to propel faster than anyone can swim underwater. All right. Underwater underwear. Underwear that allows James Bond to breathe underwater, but the only downside is you have to put your underwear on your head. Ryan. That's got to be no-no gadget. That would be perfectly satisfactory. That is a no-no gadget. I made that up, but it sounds like something that Q could make up. We're, we're back at zero to all zero. All right, zero to zero. You got that? Is that what you have, Gabe? This, like, right. this is like a soccer game. <laughs> all right, the next device is called Barbecue Kill, a barbecue grill that unleashes a smoke Alex. bomb. No. That would be perfectly satisfactory. No, that is correct. It is not a real device. Okay, okay. I couldn't get uh, any sort of grilling thing past you. I figured you would have got that one. The next one is a cyanide cigarette. Smoking kills. Ryan, technically all cigarettes... Isn't cyanide one of those things they say is in cigarettes? (laughs) I'm going to say it's real. That would be perfectly satisfactory. It is real. It's from the movie Dr. No. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah. That's one of my... That's it's one of the early favorite. ones, yeah. That's probably my favorite Bond movie, believe it or not. It's very good. All right, the next one. A knockout book. A book with words so boring that caused the reader to pass Alex. out when read out loud. That's Alex. Not, that's not a thing. That would be perfectly satisfactory. I made that one up. Yeah. That's, that's pretty funny. Yeah, that's I can good. see that working. That's good. Um, okay. The next one is called The Gourd Gun. A pump-action shotgun hitting inside of a pumpkin. Ryan. I'm going to say that's real. That's what I call trouble. That one's fake. I, I made it up, but if it wasn't a movie, it would be in The Man with the Gordon Gun. Ah, uh, this guy. <laughs> All right, got that? You ready to go? Okay. Next one is called The Dagger Shoe, a shoe with a concealed blade. Alex. Yes, that's in a Bond movie. That would be perfectly satisfactory. It absolutely is in a Bond movie. It's from, like from it's Russia with Love. Movies. All right, there you go. Yeah, it's a poison-tipped dagger. Mexican machine gun, 
a cleverly disguised machine gun that is contained within a mannequin of a racist Mexican stereotype taking a siesta. Ryan? Yeah. Uh, it's fake. That's what I call trouble. Unfortunately, it is in the movie Moonraker. The racism was a dead giveaway. That's absolutely in a Bond <laughs> film. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the next one is called Kleenex Anthrax, a tissue box that gives the unsuspecting sneezer a dose of anthrax. Ryan, that's, that's fake. That would be perfectly satisfactory. <laughs> it's absolutely that's fake. That's fake. That's fake. But it rhymes. It's fun. Uh, all right, good one. Next one is called Bedtime Trousers. A pair of pants that activates a sleeping gas when the person wearing it passes gas. Alex. No, that's not real. That would be perfectly satisfactory. No, but it's a good uh, tamper, you know, anti-tampering device if you want to make sure someone doesn't you know, have bad etiquette at a dinner table. It's kind of, it's kind of an overreaction to someone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the next one is called a, a ballpoint pen that contains a class 4 grenade. Ryan, that's, that's got to be true. That would be perfectly satisfactory. It's from Goldeneye. Yeah. I, I remember. Or Boris. Yeah, yeah and he, he kept times. clicking, and then yeah. he lost track of how he clicked it, I think. Yeah. I, I can do that because that's my old high school debate days when we learned how to flip pens. And uh, they can't let me have one that has a clicker on it. Otherwise, <laughs> that's what I do. All right, the next one is a broom radio. A radio hidden inside of a broom. Alex. Yes, that's a thing. That would be perfectly satisfactory. Yes, from the movie License to Kill. Q like, pulls out a little broom radio. Beautiful. Yeah, Beautiful. it's good stuff. Tinderizer. An iPhone with a hacked version of Tinder that allows James Bond to match automatically whoever he swipes right. Ryan. That's, that's false. <laughs> that's false? That's funny. I sure is. That's not one of the new ones. I haven't, well, that's I haven't funny. Seen, that's pretty funny. I haven't seen the new James Bond movie, but I assume that would be very helpful. That would be perfectly satisfactory. All right, that is fake. That's yes. Pretty, that's, that's pretty funny. Thank you. Uh, the next one is Dentonite Toothpaste. Plastic explosives disguised as ordinary toothpaste. Alex. This is not a Bond thing. It was a Austin Powers thing. That's what I call trouble. It's real. It's in License to Kill. And then it, it's in the opening of License to Kill. But they did kill. make fun of it in Austin Powers. No, but they, they, did. Al- they yeah. also had a Bond one that was gum while we're thinking about hmm. teeth stuff, I believe. With the red and you push. No, oh, that was Mission, Mission Impossible. Impossible. Yeah. With the red and the green yeah, gum. Yeah, yeah, See, yeah. this is where I should have done this. I yeah. should have made up some from other Bond movies where or movies Bond. that are like that are like Bond. Yeah. Okay. The next one is called a grappling hookah. A grappling hook disguised as a hookah pipe. Ryan, that, that's false because I don't see how the physics of that would work. That would be perfectly satisfactory. Well, it's still in prototype mode, but it's fake. Yes, I'm working on it in my spare time. Uh, the next one is an electromagnetic RPM controller, which is a ring controlled by Q that ensures a jackpot at the slot machines every single time. Alex. Alex? That's real. That would be perfectly satisfactory. From Diamonds Are Forever. Wow. Yeah. So That's he, pretty cool. He, yeah. Bond cheats a lot at gambling. He doesn't seem... I know. I think in the new Casino Royale, right, he plays poker. Does he yeah, cheat he, at that, he, right? He, no, plays... he wins straight up. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he's just very good. So maybe he, when, he was, when he was good, when he was young, and then later on in his twilight years, mm-hmm. he had to start cheating. Uh, the next one is a ski pole gun. A gun designed or modified... Oh, Alex. Yeah. A specifically designed ski pole, which is modified to fire thirty caliber bullets. Alex? Yes, that's true. I feel like I have in my mind an image of timothy dalton going down that would be perfectly satisfactory well it's in the spy who loved me so no. i think it's connery okay right, but yeah that's a real thing uh the mechanical meow a robot cat that distracts bond villains before exploding real or fake R- ryan ryan i'm gonna say real even yeah. though it seems preposterous i'm gonna say real that's what i call trouble i made that one up 
I think um, Bond, I, Bond movies miss well. – they don't have enough cats and exploding cats in particular. Uh, radioactive lint, a homing device made out of red regular lint that is then irradiated. Real or fake? Alex, fake. That's what I call trouble. Real. On what? Her Majesty's Secret Service. So they use a, like a little tracking device. This, little, this game's pretty hard. Like a piece of lint, like from your dryer. That they, that they the radiate. Irradiated. Yeah. And then you track Because a lot of tracking the... devices are, are isotopes of some sort of radioactive material. Huh. Yeah. Okay. And you can do lint. I mean, it was cutting edge at the time. <laughs> okay. Uh, mini rocket cigarette, capable of shooting a rocket-powered projectile accurately up to 30 yards. Ryan, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that's real. That would be perfectly satisfactory. And it is. They loved hiding things in cigarettes. Yeah. He certainly smoked all the time, James Bond. You couldn't do that now. Yeah. Because well, nobody smokes anymore. Well, Roger Moore never smoked cigarettes. He just smoked cigars. And I think uh, I think Pierce also only smoked uh, cigars. But I think the new Daniel Craig, right, doesn't he smoke cigarettes? I don't know. Yeah, I think does, I think he vaped. Is it like a... <laughs> it's a vape. It's like a rocket, like a vape rocket that shoots out acid A vaporizer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that was in You Only Live Twice. All right, we're nearing the end here. So I don't know, Gabe, you want to give us a status report about where we're at? So Ryan has three, okay. and yeah. Alex has five. So aggressive. there's only three left here, so you got to be careful. Fake nipple. Bond uses this as part of a master disguise. Alex. Fake. That's what I call trouble. Absolutely real. In the movie The Man with the Golden Gun. What did he use the... What's the context of this? I think he puts on a fake nipple and people, like, confuses somebody. <laughs> What's the context? Well, he puts on a fake nipple. <laughs> is, it a, yeah. is it a third nipple? Yeah, I believe so. <laughs> All right. Last two. Bagpipe flamethrower. A flamethrower in instead of a bagpipe. Oh, you, what got, you, you got it. You got it. Alex. Yeah. Real. That would be perfectly satisfactory. It is real. It's from The World Is Not Enough. There's no, there's no, no scenario no. in which I can win. Yeah. All right. Well, we're just, we'll, we'll just All play right, this for, is fun for the fun, for fun this one. The is last just one. For fun. The last one is called uh, Nunchuck Tailors. A pair of deadly nunchucks disguised as a pair of shoes. Ryan says that that's fake. Uh, well, at least you have that little moral victory at the end. It is fake. That would be perfectly satisfactory. So that was, a, that was a pretty close. That was good. Pretty close. That was pretty good. All right. So Alex ended up with five, and Ryan ended up with four. So the potentially radioactive. Uh, listening devices are going to Alex. Enjoy those. Boom. Thank you. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on and doing the game. Appreciate you uh, filling in for Gabe here and, and giving that a sporting for a sporting good shot. It was good. And here's where you'll play the clip of the nipple being attached. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. James and Dave, the only winning move is not to play. So let's do our parking lot movie discussion. We watched this film in the theater, and before we go our separate ways, we, we get into it. I have two questions here. Is it more you guys want to talk about? But I, I think these these are two I think will be fun. First, do new plots in James Bond movies help or hurt the story? Can you have a good James Bond movie without one? And if you have a nuclear bomb plot, does it just get too... From one of my favorite James Bond movies is License to Kill. It's the one where basically he's going after a drug cartel. And the person has no interest in trying to take over the entire world or threaten to nuke the world or threaten to nuke the moon or something like that. It's like a low-key Bond villain thing. So I think that helps because it's a little bit of a refreshing feel. But I don't know. Do you guys like the the Bond movies that have nukes in them or the ones that don't? No, I think so. I mean, I think like Bond is working best when the stakes are worldwide nuclear war, right? Okay. He's literally saving the planet. It's one man saving the planet with his little Walter PPK <laughs> and an acid-shooting fountain pen, right? The, I think the more recent Bonds, it, I do like them, 
but like the evil plot, and I'm kind of spacing a little bit on them, but I think like Casino Royale, someone was shorting something, so they were trying to blow up something. There was something. Yeah, it was like a financial engineering type thing. Right. Spectre was just like he's trying to bust open this international crime syndicate. So if if they were to make another Daniel Craig movie these days. Bring a nuke back. You think you you think it would work today? Some Russian oligarch got his hands on something from uh, hmm. Kazakhstan. There you go. Done. Well, have they done a James Bond movie recently that has to do with you know these like ISIS? No, not there was the, there was the one about in like Central America with like water issue that was more of an environmental <laughs> thing and yeah. I, I'm I'm actually I'm gonna take the contrary position. I think James Bond does not work best because okay. for me like. James Bond, it's more about these, like, lighthearted type moments, and it's it's more about these moments where he's, like, out there with these villains who have these ridiculous type plots, and nuclear weapons, it's like a real thing that scares people. I think it's better when there's, like, a space laser hmm. or, like, an underground hmm. sub layer or something like that. So I find the more ridiculous plots that aren't tied to the real world more interesting for Bond. Nuclear, for me, is almost, it, it hits a little, it's a little too real. It hits a little too close to home. So you don't like it when the movies draw upon very topical, very yeah, uh, like, current issues? Right. You, you prefer more Bond is so fantastical, right? I mean, he should be dead a hundred times over, and he's still running around, you know, womanizing and making these snarky remarks. Like, you need a you need a threat that is, like, fit to that. Like, for me, hmm. for me, the nuclear thing, that's more for, like, some of all fears or Doctor Strange, things that are trying to do like a real, really scare scare the crap out of people on this. Bond is just kind of like this, it's like this wacky, like crazy guy who just, he's, you know, mm. he's on a whole nother orbit. And... Okay, can we at least agree on this, right? If it's not nukes, it's better when it's a like ridiculously fantastical weapon. Like what was the one where it's the space laser? It was yeah, the, I agree. The Pierce Brosnan movie. Um, I think I think it appears. Is it Goldeneye? Goldeneye. Uh, well, okay. There was Goldeneye. That was the MP thing. But there was the more recent one. It had like Halle Berry in it. Die like, another day. Die another day. Well, wasn't Die another day the one with North Korea? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it, they they use a literally a space laser. They like harnesses sunlight or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it what, was. And that. what they were going to use it for was to blow up mines in the DMZ, which I always thought was funny. No, use that against. <laughs> Right, for right, right, U.S. Right. forces. Yeah, and... it had like weird plastic surgery yeah. and like the yeah. It, no, you're right. I I agree, I will agree with you. That it has to be ridiculous, but so ridiculous that it's like okay. yeah. But it has to be a weapon of mass destruction. Mm. Exactly. Okay. So this is this is where I'm uh, going to move to my second question: is what makes a good James Bond movie for each of us? Because Gabe, you uh, you made it pretty clear throughout this. You do not enjoy the overly campy no, Roger Moore nature, no. but you also like well, over sorry, the top let plots. Me, let me clarify. I think if this movie were made in like the '60s or the '70s, I, I could have totally bought. This felt like I was watching a movie like from before its time that they were just mm. like stretching out. Character of James Bond as played by Roger Moore like typifies everything that's wrong with this movie. It's some dude who's like too old to be playing this part. Like we've moved on for the '80s. They needed to bring this forward a little bit, and it's still it still looks like a campy like 1960s maybe even 1970s movie for me hmm. i agree i mean i think you need to you still need to have those ridiculous aspects of it but it needs to be tailored to the times a little bit right so now we're dealing with these issues you know you guys mentioned like isis and and you know global warming and things like this it needs to be kind of tailored to the times tailored to the filmmaking tropes of the day and i just felt like this movie felt like it was it was made for an audience like 10 or 20 years before. It just didn't fit. It was very silly. It, it almost had a similar tone than the parody movie, the original Casino Royale. 
Hmm. They had like I think it was like Woody Allen in it. It was like a goofy Peter Sellers. Maybe it was Peter Sellers okay. was in it, and it was a goofy film. It was it was like a joke Bond movie. And at certain points, this one almost had that. But I would say when you compare it to some of the other Roger Moore Bond movies, I think A View to a Kill is a little more goofier. Well, I think the ridiculous now is all in the Fast and the Furious movies. I mean, they're oh, yeah. essentially Bond films with. They are, I mean, they're, they're Bond films these days just without the spy nature of it in terms of, like, the gadgets and the fight scenes and, and things like that. We were talking earlier about at the end of the movie where Bond, like, breaks out of his cast and has a, a miraculous healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, I think there's a scene in one of the Fast and Furious movies where The Rock is in a full arm cast or whatever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, like, sees an explosion off in the distance, breaks out of the cast and says, Daddy has to go to work or something like that. <laughs> That and that, that's what I was thinking of when I saw that uh, that uh, that moment in this in Octopussy. So let's do a rating system here. We always like to close it out. We'd like to have a consistent rating system so you can compare them across the films uh, that we do, but we also want to tailor it so that it's uh, you know the, the fine tuned best uh, way you can do it. So I think uh, we'll do this time one out of five Fabergé eggs because as you know a Fabergé egg is a priceless item. Uh, so one of them is a priceless item, but can you imagine five? priceless items i can't even imagine how that math and that works out no i can't tim that's right. that's too much so how would you do one out of five uh let's start with alex our guest here one out of five Fabergé um, eggs. yeah i'm gonna go ahead and give this a two so definitely lower i think there were a couple that are small but this is the super critical podcast so in keeping with that i think the bond theme snake charmer thing like breaking the fourth wall mm-hmm. like hey we know about the theme song in world was bad the Tarzan call, that was just unforgivable. That was weird. Um, yeah, the whole weird like Orientalism they were doing in the market or whatever. I was just like, it's trying to be too cute or something. I, I didn't really like too. the movie. And, and, and above all, I mean, it was a confusing plot. Like As you mentioned in describing the plot, we didn't really get to the main bad guy until like the end or like understanding his motivations or anything like that. I mean, for um, most of the movie, we were thinking about Fabergé eggs and jewel heist, and right. then at the end, it's like, oh no, there's a nuclear weapon involved. Right, right. Anyway, so I, I just I didn't like the movie very much. Gabe, what, what would you give it? Uh, so I, I'll give it one point five. So it's like two Fabergé eggs, but one of the Fabergé eggs is like cracked, and it's like it's been used to make an omelet or something. Uh, <laughs> well, it didn't survive the the Russian Revolution. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, no, I you know I agree with what Alex said. I thought that. Like, the, the story had a lot of promise, and I was really bothered by the fact that this character of Octopussy, who yeah. has kind of an interesting story and is kind of like a, like a, a, a you know, go-women type, you know, mm. a good female lead, the story's wasted on her. She, she's kind of, like, out of the loop on a lot of stuff. I thought that could have been a really interesting story, and she's not even a villain. It's really unclear, and she just ends up becoming another one of James Bond's sexual conquests at the end. Mm. I thought there was a missed opportunity there, and just, yeah, the, the ridiculousness of a lot of it, it, it just, it lost it for me. You know, Bond needed to grow up, and uh, this really didn't do it, and, and it was a waste of a, a strong, potentially strong mm. um, female co-star. So that's that's actually interesting. That's why I give it a three, is because I don't think it's a great film. I definitely think it's even, not even a great James Bond movie, but when I weigh other James Bond movies about like the treatment of women or kind of plots that may be a little bit stale. I think Octopussy at least does enough work to me to give it a three. I think you're right. They don't do enough with uh, Octopussy herself. They do enough that it's it's uh, groundbreaking within the series. And I enjoyed that part of it. I enjoyed the, the even though the plot of the 
<laughs> tricking anti-nuclear weapons movements into disarming Europe is ridiculous. It's such like it would require 50 steps that if any point of, during this process they didn't work, then it would fail. And you just end up setting a bomb off for no reason and you leave Russia open to retaliation. Even though that is ridiculous, it's ridiculous enough that I think it's a fun James Bond film. And I think Roger Moore... I am not bothered by the fact that he's a 50-year-old, looks like a 70-year-old James Bond. I enjoy the fact that, that even in his twilight years, he still has some something to offer of uh, queen and country. And I enjoy well, that. like chasing children off the front lawn of MI6? If that's what the mission calls for, he's willing to do it. You know, the things he does for his country. Waving his cane at them. You know, it's a cane that if you push a certain button, it emits right. a, a sonic sound that only young people can hear. And that's why he's immune now. I think there's some way to, to make this work. I enjoyed the movie enough. I remember it a lot fonder when I first saw it than I did upon rewatching it for the podcast. But I think three, I'm, I'm pretty happy with. But if you enjoyed Octopussy at all and you want to learn more about some of the things that are relating to this film, uh, we've got a, a, some time now to recommend some stuff. So I don't know if Alex and Gabe have some things, uh, but I've got three things that I want to recommend. One, the James Bonding podcast, which is, it's it's pretty hilarious. It's two comedians, uh, both named Matt, Matt Gorley and Matt Myra. They get together every couple of weeks and they first, they started, they would watch the first James Bond film at the time. They would watch the last James Bond and then they would do the second and then they would do a second from the last and kind of work their way to the middle. And it's a really fun, they're both diehard Bond fans and it's a, it's a good way of catching up on the franchise. So I enjoy that. I'll, I'll, I will link to a re- government report, of all things, a Congressional Research Service report, and they are a research service that does work for Congress. Uh, there's a report called Non-Strategic Nuclear Weapons by Amy Wolf, who is a rock star on uh, anything having to, re- to relate to nuclear weapons. This is a report from, it was last updated earlier this year in 2017, and it's great history of the, the role of nuclear weapons in Europe non-strategic nuclear weapons, the debates that took place, and what we're still debating today about whether or not Germany, for example, will kick out all the nuclear weapons in their country. If you only have a few minutes to read something, it's a great report to check out. And finally, I recommend License to Kill, only because a lot of people don't really like it, but I, I enjoyed it. It was directed by John Glenn, who directed this film, and we'll probably cover some of the other James Bond movies that have new plots later on, like Goldfinger, the, the movie where... Uh, some guy wants to detonate a nuclear bomb or a dirty bomb in Fort Knox to irradiate all the gold so that gold prices go sky high and, and the Bond villain has all of the gold, so he's mm. going to get a bunch of money. I think that'll be fun, and we're going to do some of those, but I do enjoy the refreshing take that it's not about nuclear war in this movie. It's just kind of a low-level revenge, mm. attacking some cartels. I recommend the uh, senior citizen discount at Denny's. Or, yeah, if you if you're... Yeah, had a hard day of, you know, solving nuclear crimes and and uh, dressing up like a clown. You can well, go there Roger to... Moore was a, a listener to our podcast until he recently passed away. I don't know who you're directing that to now, but the uh, spirit of Roger Moore, right? Let's do a toast to Roger Moore. One more. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Alex, thanks so much for coming back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. We'll wait till we can find another uh, film franchise that's done at least five yeah, plus let's movies. Do it. Love it. Gabe, thanks again, too. All right. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. 
Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. We've had some great discussions on there. And email supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks to everyone who has left a five-star review in the recent weeks. It's a big help to help grow the show, earn some more listeners, and we always appreciate the feedback on what people think about the show itself. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Gabe. And Alex. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. And Joel will return in an upcoming episode about the Leftovers TV show. 